The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, the great and powerful Tony Hinchcliffe, the biggest pro wrestling fan of the world. Totally appropriate that he's here today because we have the king. Whoa. We share a birthday. We share four letters of our last name. Mm-hmm. The fucking man, Hulk Hogan. Do I need these things, brother? Uh, you don't have to. We, I like them. They lock everybody in. They look they look great with your do-rag. Can't even hear you, man. You can't? Is it not on? A little cranker. Volume? Chest, test, Whoa. test. Here we go. Strong, brother. Well, thank you for having me here. Please, it's an honor. <sighs> great to see you, man. Yeah. What's cracking? We were, we were talking about back surgeries before this. I can't, I can't believe let me, how many let me, let me Let me wake up here. I need to do okay. the Hulk Hogan thing real okay. quick. Okay. Well, you know something, Joe Rogan? When I walked into this place, that was the perfect style for me, dude. The paintings, the mug shots, all the people that I beat up. I knew this was the place to be, man. So what you gonna do when Rogan and Hogan run wild on you, brother? That's a good question. Yeah! Okay, I'm good. Yeah, right. he just let's got, go. I'm childhood good now. boner. And an adult I'm boner. Too. <laughs> I'm good now. <laughs> let's go. I'm good. The coffee's great. Thank you. My pleasure. It's great to see you. And thanks for, uh, you have a cannabis company now. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about this. Well, I got hooked up with Mike Tyson, Flair, and all those. Ah, same company. Yeah, guys. And our buddy Chad put the whole deal together. And there's kind of like, it's like the Italians, you know. There's, there's an open lane. There's more room at the table right. for one more to eat. Yeah. And it was a situation we started talking about the CBD stuff, the energy and the sleep stuff and, and the whole nicotine thing. And there's a way to wind backwards mm-hmm. from all the crazy, crazy bad stuff that a lot of us have participated in over the years. Yeah. And so it just made sense to move in that direction. And, you know, my brand's been around for so long. There's a lot of people that we really think we can help out with this stuff. So that's why we're going down that road because a lot of my boys, you know, from the pharmaceutical side of things made a lot of missteps and, aren't around today where I think this could have been a situation that might have helped them wind down from that crazy high they were on from the, the crowds and the lifestyle yeah. and everything to, to be able to settle back and become who they really are, you know. Also pain management. Yeah, that's a whole nother trip, brother, because um, I've had 25 surgeries in the last 10 years. So when people say, hey, you know, the wrestling's fake, it goes right up my ass because yeah, at the end of the day, ass. it's predetermined. If you and I are wrestling, those are going to tell us who's going to win or lose. But all that stuff that happens in the middle, it hurts. I mean, you know, and, and you know, it's uh, it's a rough way to go. So, well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think you guys have literally the hardest job in all of show business because you're out there on the road. How many days a year in your prime? Well, we were talking earlier when when I was doing this full time before this John Cena and The Rock and these guys came around, I was really flying 300 days a year. 300 days and, a year. And I was wrestling 400 to 450 times a year. Jesus. I would wrestle twice Wednesday, like like a Saturday morning, I'd sell out the Philadelphia Spectrum at one o'clock and then that night be in Madison Square Garden. Wow. Then Sunday in one in the afternoon, I'd be in the Boston Garden and then Sunday night I'd be at LA Forum. You know, so it was, it was, a, it was a pretty good stretch, you know, and that's an insane amount of work and an insane amount of punishment on your body. When, especially knowing what you did 
and the the way you would fucking drop down. I mean, th- how many of those impacts? Oh my god! Do you <laughs> think that you've experienced thousands, thousands? I mean, now when I see it, you know, the guys are younger, faster, smaller athletes, but they're super athletes, you know. And the equipment, the rings they have. Oh my god! It's like they're perfectly made. Where you know, I'd go wrestle Andre the Giant in let's say Baltimore Civic Center instead of the normal 18-foot ring, it would be a 22-foot boxing ring. It would be harder than the concrete. Mm. And Andre would go, don't go down, you know, which means if you fall down, you're not going to get back up. Mm. You know, so we'd actually have a match on our feet because Andre was like the boss. He was the leader, you know, mm. and he was my guy. So, you know, it's the equipment's so much better now. Um, a lot of the guys getting hurt today are getting hurt because of how athletic and the crazy stuff yeah. they're doing. but. You know, we were just getting hurt from just pounding on each other so much. I remember watching Brock Lesnar do a, a front flip and land on his head. And I'm like, any other human is paralyzed from yeah. that. Yeah. Any other human. To, to be 300 plus pounds, to be built like a fucking superhero, and to do a front flip and land on your fucking head. Most people are dead. I think it was a backflip. I think it was a moonsault, right? Was it? Was yeah, the moonsault? So. You would know more. It was than like anybody. an inverted. Yeah. He stood forward looking at you. It was like an inverted. So it was forward. There it is, Tony. Oh, it is forward. Yeah. Look at the fucking we'll size of oh, it. Oh, it was a forward backflip. And he landed yeah. on his own head. Oh my god, dude, that's insane. Yeah. Most people are dead. Yeah. Yeah, Most no people are dead. Well, I, I mean, get... I don't know what permanent damage he suffered, but by the way, he went from that to fight in the UFC. Yeah. He fought in the UFC after that, well, which he... is insane. Well, I got him I got him first when he came back from the UFC, okay? And I was kind of like winding down, putting guys over and doing my thing. And Vince goes, I want you to work with Brock. I went, okay, well, I knew his buddy Brad Riggins, who was, the, the, who was in Minnesota. He was the coach of the Olympic team several years back. And so when Brock was in high school, we had heard of him. We kept an eye on him, you know. But when he came back from UFC, they gave him to me first, and he was really intense, brother. You know, he was really intense. So my whole thing is we always grab somebody and squeeze him and give him the office. Like, if you got my head and you're about to break my neck, give him the office so you lighten up, you know. I squeezed the piss out of him, giving him the office, and finally I just started calling him Broccoli. And I said, Broccoli? I got him to laugh a little bit. I said, let me tell you something. If you keep hurting me in here, if you don't loosen up on the old man here, I'm going to make you look really, really bad because you can be in here by yourself. You know, I used to tease him all the time because he's a really good friend, you know. And so when I got him first, he was really, really intense. And now he's like, he's turned out to be one of the best workers this business has ever seen. Yeah. I mean, he, brother, he draws money. He backpedals. He sells. He's got instinct. He's, you know, got placement. He knows where he's at. He listens. Like, you don't have to tell him what to do you don't have to have a right or write the match out he goes out and listens to the crowd with his mind and his heart you know and it's something that's a lost art form he's got it man so he turned he figured it out that's interesting that it's like a lost art form because for people who don't know how you guys do a match like there's a lot of improvisation going on yeah if you're really good at what you do you you're in you're in the back and all of a sudden, if you're really good at what you do, back in the day, I'm talking old school stuff, the referee would come to you and say, hey, you know, Hogan, they want you to go over Piper with a leg drop or they want a count out or whatever. You know, so knowing that, you know, Piper was so good at what he did or Mr. Wonderful, a lot of guys I worked for, we wouldn't, we'd be, if we were in the same dressing room, we wouldn't even talk. 
I'll see you out there, brother. You're going overnight. Okay, I'm going over. It was that good, you know, and the, mm. and the crowd will tell you what to do mm. if you listen. And you guys have worked together so many times. Yeah, and, I mean, there's a lot of times where you, you run into guys like Chris Jericho. First time I ever worked with him, you know, they wanted Jericho to put me over, and Jericho went, Jericho and I went out there, and I didn't know what to expect, and he was brilliant in the ring. It was like magic. We didn't even have to say a word. I told Vince, I said, give me that guy every night. That's mm. like a day off, you know. I didn't get hurt at all. What's incredible with Brock is that Brock went from pro wrestling to being the UFC heavyweight champion. I mean, and did so with such a short amount of time of training in MMA. I mean, obviously he had a, a spectacular amateur wrestling career. He was a legit top flight amateur wrestler and a fucking genetic freak. Mm -hmm. All those things. But to yeah. be able to make that transition to, to winning the fucking world title against a guy like Randy Couture, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for what I think a lot of people say, oh, he was so big and he was this and that and he did steroids and there's all these excuses. Like, you don't understand what that guy did. Like, what that guy did is n nothing short of insanity. Like, no one's ever done that before. No one's ever gone from, I mean, the way he did it too and to, to <clears throat> fucking... To, to get in there and beat a guy like Randy, who's, you know, one of the best of all time. Like, Randy was a real pioneer, and Randy was still really at the top of his game back then. It wasn't that, it was just, he was just fucking a freak, just a real freak. Like, I always said that if, like, that guy, like, fresh out of college, like, if we were in a different era, like, if he's coming fresh out of college today, and someone like Faraz Sahabi or, you know, Henry Hooft, like some top flight MMA instructor gets a hold of him as a young man and teaches him how to really teaches him how to strike where, you know, he's comfortable and, and, and he can move just like like elite guys of today. Fuck. He would have been unstoppable. He would have been unstoppable. He's a monster, brother. He's a monster. He still is. Still is. So he's the, like the biggest genetic freak maybe I've ever ever seen in the sport. Me and my crew used to go to the Royal Rumbles for a few years, a few years back. Yeah. And, we, and there's 30 people. One comes out every minute. And that's where you really see what a freak he is. Because it stands out amongst 30 other wrestlers. You can tell with two, but with 30, and he comes in and he's flying. He's faster than the other people. He's stronger than the other people. It's it's the closest thing to it is like watching LeBron James play basketball. You're like, how does he move like that? He just got to the hoop in two steps, and that's what he's doing in the wrestling ring. You ever see his NFL combine numbers? Uh -uh. He had like legit top flight combine numbers, like ridiculous numbers. See if you can pull those up, because just a fucking freak, man. Yeah. Like a real rare one. Very fast, too. Like his run was fast. Look at this. 6'3", weighs 283 pounds, a 40-yard dash of 4'7". 4'7", at 283 pounds. That's insane. Jump 35 inches vertically and 10 feet from the standing long jump. 10 feet. He's <laughs> hurling 10 feet. He's hurling almost 300 pounds, 10 feet. He can bend 225 pounds for 30 reps. 225 for 30 fucking reps. <laughs> That's crazy. Dude. Oh, look, it's me, astounded. <laughs> I've been astounded multiple times by that guy. That's he, crazy. Th there's a few guys that I say, he like... He can still go, brother. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he can still go. Well, there was talk about him fighting again in the UFC just fairly recently, like a few years ago. You know, I mean, I'm sure in the back of his head, he still wants to stomp some people, you know? 
He's intense, brother. I mean, I've, last time I was around him, I was in Saudi Arabia with him. You know, he's real intense. You know, he hasn't changed a bit. I mean, the guy went from, he goes and fights Frank Mir, who's a former UFC heavyweight champion, you know, like a, right into the top of the food chain, gets leg locked, comes back and beats Frank Mir in the rematch, just beats the shit out of him. I mean, he was a real, he was the real deal, man. And a lot of people don't give him enough credit. And then he, then there's the problem with the diverticulitis. So he had to get a, a long section of his intestine removed, I believe. I believe it was in his intestine. Well, yeah. he eats everything that he hunts. That's the yeah. deal. Yeah. You know, so he's always out hunting stuff. <laughs> I don't know why, how you get diverticulitis. Um, Anthony Bourdain told me it's a real mystery because you could actually get it from a seed. Like a seed could get stuck. He goes, it's not just like people say, oh, he ate too much meat. That, that's not necessarily the case. He said there's a lot of things that could have happened. But either way so he has that and then he comes back and fights alistair during the juicy juice days mm-hmm. when alistair was on everything known to man yeah. <laughs> wow i think he just got kicked in that spot right exactly that what by a k1 grand prix champion like mm. alistair Overeem was the elite of the elite for kickboxing and he was saucy i mean wow. he came in saucy well there was no usada back then so you just had to pass a test on the day of the weigh-ins, oh, which God. is like an IQ <laughs> test. Yeah. And then just using all these masking agents and shit. There's like, you know, it's, it's a different world back then. You know what's crazy, dude? I found out that slap fighting, they have to test those guys for drugs. What? Wouldn't you want <laughs> your slap fighters on meth? Yeah. I want a fucking energetic <laughs> slap fighter. Oh, right? my God. I don't yeah, want a slap fighter me. who's fucking drinking green tea and taking creatine. <laughs> I want my slap fighters drunk. Yeah. Right? Don't 100%. you? Oh, my God. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, they're treating it like a real sport, so it has to get approved by the athletic commissions. They just want their money, man. Yeah. That's <laughs> one there. Um, you know, you talk about, like, I, want, I wonder how many times can you do that? How many times can you just get let dude smack you in the head? Like, you get five of those in your body? Ten? How long can you do that for? You know? Well, I don't know. Like, first time I was ever knocked out, from a slap was from a girl Whoa. in the garden, Sherry Martell. Scary Sherry, I don't know if you oh, remember wow, her. Oh, wow, of course, sensational Sherry. Yeah, I had Macho Man hooked, you know, took him over to the apron. Sherry stuck when she went to slap me, he ducked, and she cut my ear, and I was Whoa. stumbled and went down on one knee when you go down, you know, my leg went off, Yeah. And I came back up, and then I sat on my butt, and I was kind of like out for about 30 seconds, but just from that slap from a girl, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, Sherry was a tough girl, and she was strong, but still, I was surprised she could knock me out with it. People would be stunned at how easy it is for them to get knocked out. They really would. If if someone has good mechanics, if they can really throw their body into it, and I would imagine a woman like her who's been well, you pro get hit wrestling on the for so long. You get hit on the button too. The yes. right spot. Yeah. You know. It is the right spot. Yeah. But it's stunning. It's stunning how like easy it is to get K, especially if you're not expecting it. When you think about all the injuries that you've had, and you think about like how many matches that you wrestle? I mean, we're talking about almost like a science project. Like how many how many human beings have gone through that amount of punishment over that long period of time? And before you, there wasn't really a lot to gauge before you guys. Because like, what year did you start wrestling? 77. Oh my God. What? That's insane. 77 all the way up to Brock Lesnar. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That's an, inc- it's incredible. So, like, the amount of just 
physical collisions you've had with gigantic men. It's off the charts. Well, you know, yeah. I hate to keep going to the back in the day thing, but you know, Please when I do. first when I first went to New York in '78, I'm sitting in a dressing room. You got King Kong Mosca there, 340, Swede Hansen 350. Of course, you got Andre the Giant there. I was like 300 pounds. I was like a medium-sized guy. You know, when I first went up to New York, I was like, holy crap. You know, so it's, and you know, that type of people pushing on, you know, especially back then it wasn't all the high spots and the jumping up in the air and diving over the top rope. You stayed in the ring, grabbed a hold and wrestled and kind of would fight your way out. And, you know, if they were going to choke you out in the middle of the garden and the lights are 120 degrees, you got to learn how to breathe through it and think through it and know the reversal. So there was a lot of grinding people that were big so it kind of like wore you down you know a lot more than <clears throat> me and Jericho or me and The Rock doing our thing it was different back then mm. the, the physicality of it so you started in 77 Seven, yeah. 77 and what was the first match that you did like how did you get into it like did, did you oh amateur wrestle no I didn't I messed around in, in junior high school you know but then by the time I got into high school I was playing in a rock and roll band Oh no shit. <clears throat> yeah. What what uh what did you play? Well I started out playing guitar for several years and my dad had bought me a guitar. My dad was a construction worker and he bought me a cheap guitar and I took guitar lessons. So you know, through junior high school and stuff, I was playing in these little garage bands on the weekend. And then by the time I got to high school we were going up to the University of Florida, Gainesville and playing for the fraternities and having a blast, you know. So I started, you know, playing music that you know, for many, many years, for 10 years, I played music to make a living, anything to avoid working a real job. And then, you know, we, I started making good money, you know. Um, when I was in high school, I ended up, you know, having to leave home when I was 17, as per my father's request. And I, you know, lived in a hotel over on Davis Island in Tampa where they had this kind of like, um, kind of like the disco era, like the Tower of Power, the syncopated music, that dun 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 you know, that real yeah. funky stuff. And I started playing bass in a show band there. And so that just kind of ran its course. And um, then, you know, at the end of the day, all the rest, when I, I left for a while and I was traveling on the road and doing session work out of uh, Century Artist in Atlanta. And when I came back, I got like the good drummer from the good high school band in one of the bands. And then I grabbed one of the really good lead singers from another band that was around the area and kind of like grabbed all the good keyboard players when I was growing up. We put them all in one band called Ruckus. And uh, yeah, there Look it is right that. there. Whoa. <laughs> How'd you do that, man? Jamie's a wizard. How'd you do that? Jamie's a wizard. What's up with that, Willis? How'd you do that? <laughs> so anyway, that band Ruckus, all the wrestlers started coming in. You know, Hold on. Is that you in the far left? I'm in the middle. Where are you? Oh, right there, there you are. Oh, you got, you're in disguise. Yeah. Kind of. Back. I don't know. That looks he's like in the back, Hogan But he's me. in the back. Well, the, the thing is that like, you're kind of kneeling. That's why I was confused. Yeah. It looks like you're something. sitting on something. Sitting yeah. On something. Every, the other guy in front of you is sitting too. Anyway, like, all the wrestlers kept coming in, right? Well, you must have been towering over these dudes. So you probably had a set. Yeah, I was. I mean, I'd started lifting weights, you know, when I was 18. Oh. And I was. Which is unusual for a band. Oh, there's right? another band, yeah. Look at that. Look oh, at you. Wow. wow. Yeah, um, that's kind of like a funky little disco type band I was in <laughs> I remember very clearly when I was a kid um, watching Rocky 3 and watching you in Rocky 3 and 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 saying like what the fuck do you do if someone's that big 
because this is like during my martial arts days. And I remember watching that movie going, there's nothing you're doing. You're not doing anything. If he's getting old, yeah. you're, you're so fucked. That, that scene. Yeah. That's crazy. That scene was so wild. That's crazy. It, it, was, it, was so, uh, it was so in tribute to pro wrestling, too, even the way you talk to him after the match. Yeah, it's like like he like he thought it was real. You, he, he didn't know what the fuck was going on. And after he was like, "Hey, that was a good job." Like, and it it sort of let everybody know a little, maybe one of the first ever windows behind the scenes where you could see what the top flight pro wrestlers actually do. Like, you can call it fake, but it's yeah. it's not. There's nothing fake happening. It's like it's just orchestrated, or at least there's a predetermined outcome. But the fucking physicality. It's bananas. Well, I, I got to give it to Sloan. He took all the hits and all the bumps. and uh, He was an animal. Yeah, I kind of messed his collarbone up, you know, by accident. But, you know, it was, he was amazing. I mean, I remember when I was going to go do that film, Vince McMahon Sr. fired me because of that, because of that movie. What? I, I, well, I'd get the call. I didn't know there was a senior. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, Vince Sr. That's what I started working for, brother. Yeah, Vince oh, yeah. McMahon. So it's senior. not the Vince McMahon that's an old no, guy now. No. His dad was yeah. the star. When I first when I first <sighs> went to when I first went to New York in seventy eight, Vince McMahon Senior had a couple of Phil Zacco and a couple of partners, and Vinny Junior had one building, I think, in Cape Cod, and Vince would come in once every three weeks, he would hold a stick like mean gene. You know. So when I first started there seventy and however long I lasted till probably mid eighties, and I told Vince Senior I got this crazy call to come out and do a Stallone movie. Stallone movie. First, I was in the dressing room, and Gorilla Monsoon gave me the note. I'm like, yeah, right. I threw it away because, <laughs> you know, Stallone was like 150 feet tall in the public's eyes, and I saw Rocky one and Rocky two. I was like, oh, my God. So I said, yeah, another wrestling joke, you know, like pooping in my bag or putting lots on my <laughs> stuff, you know. So I split to Japan for like eight weeks, and when I came back again to TV again in Allentown, they handed me a Western Union letter, this time from Stallone. So I flew out there and talked with him and got in the ring with him and did a couple things. If you want to hear about that, that's a little different. But well, what would you do? Well, when I went out there, I just had my nose broke in Japan for like the second or third time. And when I went out there, I was so enamored and such a fan of his. You know, he goes, Let's, they had a guy with a, one of those big cameras, old school cameras, you know, when I came in. So I knew I was on camera, you know, sorry. At least I knew that much back then. And so he goes, hey, let's just get in the ring and move around. I had jeans on and uh, cowboy boots. He goes, oh, let's just get in the ring like this. So he goes, I'm going to try to hit you. I said, well, if you want to, you can hit me in the nose because I saw the camera. I thought it would be cool if he splattered my nose. That's how crazy I was. This is right after nose surgery? No, I didn't have nose surgery. It was right after I had my nose broken. Oh, you just had it broken again. Yeah, I flew back to TV. I'm just assuming you had it fixed. No, no. No, Andre would, yeah. fi- Andre would fix everything for you. Yeah. He'd just stand uh, behind you with the sums and push ooh. everything down. But so I got in the ring. He goes, you know, try to hit me, you know. And so he, when he went to hit me, I just grabbed him. I said, I don't want to hit you. He goes, well, hit me. Give me everything you have. I went, I said, no, brother, you, you don't want that. I said, there's a certain place I can, I can hit you harder than others. But if I hit you as hard as I can, it's not going to be cool. He goes, well, give me 50%. I went, I really don't want to. I said, what is I could, going on with Sylvester? No, 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 no. He was because they were filming this whole right, thing. Right? Right. So I said, "Well, you try to hit me, I'll grab you, I'll bend you over, and I hammer you between the shoulders." And, and I hit him. I probably gave him fifty percent. And as soon as I made contact, his face hit my cowboy boots. 
he came up and his lip was bleeding. So oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. And so he was all excited, you know, just because I hit him. What a psycho. Yeah. And then we got out of the ring and he goes, you're a fake wrestler. You know, boxers can kick a wrestler's ass anytime. Get mad. So he wanted me to do an interview, right? So I did, let me tell you something, you know, that whole right. stick. So he goes, I want you for the film. And I've never had an agent. I've never been in a movie. I don't know anything. He goes, I'll give you $10,000 to do the film. Me being the negotiation genius that I am, I went, I want fifteen. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want fifteen grand. So, so he gave me fourteen thousand dollars, and I signed whatever. Oh my they, god, he bargained with you! Yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah, so I signed. What the fuck, Sly? <laughs> You're stealing. Yeah, so I signed whatever he wanted back in the day, and that was it. But how rude! Yeah, but no. Wouldn't even give him the fifty. That's some but, negotiation but die, bullshit right there. But to go backwards, Sly. I had called Vince McMahon Senior. That night from Fall River, Massachusetts, because I was wrestling at a high school in Fall River, Massachusetts. And I called Vince because he was my guy. We were, we were really good friends on top of him helping me, giving me the break, Vince Sr. I called him in Fort Lauderdale and I said, brother, I'm leaving tomorrow to go to L.A. to do this film. He goes, no, you're not. He goes, it's midnight now. You have to be in Charlotte at noon for TV with Crockett because that's where Flair and all those guys were. He was sending me down to that southern swing wrestling thing. I said, no, I told you I'm not going to do that. You know, I said, I'm going to go do this movie. And as soon as I'm done with the movie, I'll come back. He goes, well, don't come back. You're never going to work here again. Never. So I went, okay. I was single at the time, spending 20 to 24 weeks a year in Japan. Had a great hookup in Japan being single with my friends and all the stuff that was going on there, you know. And um, so I went to Japan, and the movie came out, and all of a sudden, this guy Vern Gagne from Minnesota called me wanted me to come in there. So that was the place everybody wanted to go. Wrestle in the AWA for Vern Gagne. I don't know if you've, you've heard of it. Of course, yeah. Four days a week. He pays you better than any of the promoters. And I just stumbled in right behind this guy, the Crusher. He was like the Hulk Hogan of the Twin Cities and that whole St. Paul across Wisconsin area with Brock Lesnar and Brad Riggins, all those guys. Live. So Crusher was walking out. I was walking in. And I wouldn't let anybody see my face. My arms were legitimately 24 back then. And I'd throw my arms up and i go, hey, if you guys want to see my face, you got to buy a ticket. I was trying to be a bad guy. <laughs> and I'd do all my interviews with the back to the camera. My back was this wide back then. And they wanted me to wrestle Jesse Ventura. And Jesse Ventura is the one that actually turned me babyface. As soon as I walked out, they booed the piss out of him and cheered me. So I had that little run in Minnesota for three years. Then we were coming into New York. You know, Vern Gagne was going to buy TV time on Channel 9 and all up and down the East Coast. That's when Vince Jr. came back and said, hey, brother, you know, I want you to come back to New York. And we had a talk. He came to my house in Minnesota at 5 in the morning. We shook hands, and we did that whole worldwide takeover. Wow. Vince called the shots, and I went out and did the dirty work, flying around and going to all these places I shouldn't go. Good for you sticking to your guns and doing that movie. I can't imagine if you weren't in that movie. That was such an important scene. <laughs> Well, what's crazy is that you were told that you'll difference. never work in uh, <laughs> WWF again. And it was before Ugh. you uh, I had hair back the... then. Oh, my God. Wow. This is such a fucking great scene. You're <laughs> <laughs> so much bigger than him. It's so ridiculous. <clears throat> fun fucking fun scene. That was but... weird because, brother, right before I... Well, if you came to my house and my mother was still alive, she would want to know your name and she had a 
a pencil, she would measure everybody, you know. So <laughs> what? Measure, your, me- measure she, everybody? Of, she had a little thing, like bro. Adults? Come on, man. That was her thing. She had a thing. Yeah, everybody. Kids, adults. <laughs> and your name would be next to the pencil <laughs> marker, right? That's amazing. So when I went to do the Rocky movie, I was um, six foot seven on the nose. And I was like 330 pounds. I had like a 34-inch waist. I was in crazy shape back then. Yeah. And so right before my mom passed away a few years ago, she goes, Terry, I want to measure you. I said, okay, mom. You know, this is after 10 back surgeries. She measured me. I was six foot four. Wow. So I lost that much Three height. inches of discs. Yeah, between the yeah. leg drop after the leg, leg drop. The leg for 40 drop. years and the back surgeries and the knee replacements and the hip replacements. It changes your, your whole look. Yeah, that's what happens when old people shrink. Their backs. Uh, easy it's on a lot the old, but easy on the old, brother. I just turned 70. Take it easy. I just turned 56. We have the same birthday. August 11th. Yeah. Um, Happy birthday. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Happy birthday to you, no, too. Hemsworth has the same birthday. As really? Him. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, what are the odds? Um, 365? Well, no, probably huge. Well, have you heard of the birthday paradox? The birthday yeah. problem? Yeah, how does that work? It's one of the craziest things ever. It's uh, some statistical anomaly where uh, if you have, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's like 45 people in a room. For some reason, two people will have the same birthday. Birthday Her- paradox, known as the birthday problem, states that in a random group of 23 people, there are about 50%. J- Jamie's the goat. How does he keep so doing When you that? go to other podcasts, <laughs> you will, you'll be confused <clears throat> as to how incompetent those people are. I can't believe I get to watch Hulk Hogan learn what Google is. <laughs> no, it's learn how good Jamie is like getting these I things. I could, I'd 20, need to learn that, too. So a random group of 23 people, there's about a 50% chance that two people would have the same birthday. Wow. That's weird. I wonder if that then, <clears throat> if you get with, uh, if you get to forty six people, if it's a hundred percent chance. <laughs> oh God! Crazy! Wow! It goes up. Interesting. For so if, with a hundred people, so it seems like it's gonna happen. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's even weirder? People give a fuck about their birthday. Shut your mouth. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's my birthday. If I guess I get it if it's girls. For some reason, that doesn't annoy me. When dudes get really excited about their birthday, like, come on, bro. Yeah. I'm not your mom. That's true. I think 40 hurt worse more than 70. 40 did? Yeah, they hurt worse more than 70. Oh, fuck. I'm 10 months away from it. (laughs) Dude, trust me. Just stay healthy. It's a number, you know, for you. The, the guy like Hulk, the thing about you is just the amount of punishment that you put your body through. It's not your mind. You, your mind's in a great place. It's just uh, I, I don't think people, the, the average person truly appreciates the unbelievable amount of punishment you guys go through. But it's not just me. Yeah. You know, I, I, my girl Sky that I'm engaged to, I had to slowly bring her up to speed because, number one, I didn't want to run her off. Because all the, the crazy lifestyle and my friends that are around and all the stuff I've been through, there's been a few con- controversial situations I've been through. Oh, yeah. But just with the injuries, you know, I mean, I took her to the 30th anniversary of Monday Night Raw because I opened the show. And we, and so she's starting to see that it's not just me. All yeah. the guys kind of walk like I do when they're all hurt. And yeah. You see a lot of stuff on TV with these A&E things and Dark Side of the Ring where they show you how beat up these guys are. So... You know, it's um, it's what the business does to you, you know. And yeah, I mean, you're you're playing, you're you're in a, a rally where you're smashing cars into each other, but the car's your body. Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of a lot of guys, I mean, you know, like 
Brock's a, an animal, you know, Kurt Angle's an animal, believe me. Oh, <laughs> he's yeah. he's yep. too much. And a lot of guys have come through, like Rampage, Jackson, King Moe, Tito Ortiz. We've had a bunch of guys come through, and whether they're there a day or three or four days, they go, we don't want to do this to our body. Yeah. They, Isn't that crazy? Know, they're, they're in the ring. I mean, after the first day, if you, if you can lift your head up off the pillow without having to pick your head up, you know, you're fortunate. You know, just mm. three or four hours in the ring the first day. But, you know, a lot of these guys realize, I have to do this crap every night to myself. What has helped you the most in terms of like alleviation of pain or bringing back your your movement? Like what what has helped you the most? Well, I don't have the movement back. You know, I've had a real hard time. um, You know, just doing normal things. I can't from the back the the back being fused. Yeah, the back and and how many discs are fused? Everything's fused. The whole back. I've had ten back surgeries, but. The thing is, you know, my knees and my wow. hips are so old now because I had the left knee scoped three or four times, the right knee scoped three or four times, then I had mm. them replaced. Then I had the hips replaced, and they, they're all over 20 years old. Oh, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like they said, oh, you can't wrestle the knee replacement. Well, I was wrestling with two knees and a hip replacement. At WrestleMania 18, I was dragging the rock around the ring for a half hour. Yeah, you, you know. can you can actually do that now with hip replacement. John Wayne yeah. Parr had an MMA fight after he had uh, actually I think it was a Muay Thai fight after he had a hip replacement. Yeah, the knees are tougher, brother. The knees are, are yeah, knees hard are tougher. To get by, yeah, but uh, the, they're doing them now <laughs> to the point where people can still can go back to engaging in athletics. And I'm wondering, like, I wonder if they're going to get to the point where these things are like a permanent thing because they they say you're about 20 years. Is that what they say? Well, they told me about 15 were the ones I got. 15? But, you know. I think now they're saying with some of them 20, but it's like, man, that means, like, you've got an hourglass in your head counting down to 20 years where you're going to have to go through that shit again. Like, every operation I've ever had, and I've only had a few, the, the thing about the, the recovery is a bitch. Yeah. It's like a long time for your yeah. body to get used to being, first of all, put under, and then if you have something major like an ACL reconstruction or something like that, like, you're... You're fucked for months, for months. Yeah, it's, I've, I've had some close calls and some rough ones, man. I mean, you know, they all weren't just cookie-cutter surgeries. I've had some major issues go down, so. Have you done stem cells? Yes. Where'd you go? Well, I called Mel Gibson after seeing him on ah, here. Ah, yeah. And uh, Mel So you hit, went with Dr. Neil Reardon down yeah, in Panama? Yep. I sent my mom down there a couple times. Yeah, and I'd already had several experiences experiences before yeah with stem cells and i and they just didn't i don't know how to explain it i'm different my body's different you know there's been so much it just didn't do enough well i went down there to panama for three days you know they Mm -hmm. they hook you up iv wise then locally they blast you all over the place and shoulders everywhere and uh after three days you know they they would call me like Two weeks later, and say, "Hey, you know, so I feel the same." Then a month later, they call me, feel the same. Then like three months later, call me, nothing. You know, so I didn't didn't get anything from it. I wonder if your body's so beat up that it's just bone on bone everywhere, and there's not, nothing that can be done. That there's so much to heal yeah. that it's not even getting to the big things because it's. You know, I, I mean? wonder what it would be like if that shit was in America, and if they gave because. Right now, you can. There are stem cells that are available in America, but it's limited, and yeah. it's a different situation. Like that's why I always encourage people to go to like Panama or Colombia or Tijuana has a great place too. But 
if that was legal in America, I wonder if someone like you could be able to go and just do that like once a week. Oh, that'd and, be awesome. And maybe they, it, it awesome. can fix you. Like maybe it's just uh, a dosage and time thing. That's That was my first thought. You know, if this is what normal people do, whack this stuff once every three months, I need it once a week. That's, right. That was the first thing I thought. I know? wonder, I mean, it really sucks that the... Because I, don't, I haven't seen anything negative about the use of stem cells. So I'm, I'm just really frustrated that it's illegal in the United States and that all these people are getting great results. I know so many athletes that have gotten problems fixed through stem cells. And most of them have done it in either Colombia or Tijuana. Yeah. And it's kind of a bummer because if, if we could do that to people like yourself, like it's conceivable that you could really heal somebody. Like they're they're doing some amazing stuff where they're shooting it into discs and they're creating new disc tissue. Like if they can do that to people and people can avoid getting fused. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh my god, it just it's such a bummer that it's it's so restricted because I don't see the danger to it when you consider it and in, in comparison to the danger against some things like opiates, which are legal. Yeah. Right. Like, why, why are you restricting this? Like, this, this seems like, like, I had a full-length rotator cuff tear disappear. Just went away That's from crazy. stem cells. Six months later, I get an MRI. He's like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. He's like, it's gone. Same, they were going to give me neck surgery. Yeah. Constant pain in my shoulder. I thought my shoulder was completely torn out. Got an MRI. They said it was discs at the base of my neck and just all the nerves. It just felt like wow. my shoulder, which is crazy because I literally wanted to cut my arm off. Like if it was, if it was the <laughs> if it was the 1600s or whatever, I was like, this pain sucks. Yeah. Cut it off, and then I still would have had it. Um, but they did it. They said up, six, up to 60 days. You might, it might, you might yeah. feel better immediately. It might be in 60 days. And day 59, it was like someone flipped wow. a switch. Yeah, but, well. I mean, yeah, dude, you were always like sitting in the green room, like oh, holding your neck. You're always terrible. doing that during Kill Tony, trying oh. to listen to people. I'd have to sit on my own legs if I sat flat on my butt for some reason. So I'd have to like sit like this and listen yeah. and pay attention and try oh, to be wow. funny. It was a nightmare. I couldn't sit on my butt, and you forget. <clears throat> you would for I would forget. So like uh, you're, there's a bar stool there. For some reason, bar stools were the worst. Yeah. Different than the 90 degree angle of a chair, kind of. Like, so like, it's like a very specific angle. You have to hold your head, or it hurts. You'd have to like hold your hip to a side or something. Wow. Because if you if the weight was yeah. straight down, it was just. All I know, the longer you're hurt, the more it changes. I remember I couldn't sit in a chair, you know, for the longest time, and then I couldn't drive a car, which of course sit in a chair. And then my biggest thing was when I'd go upstairs and I'd look at my bed, my mindset was I dread laying down because I know when I lay down, it's going to hurt so bad and I'm probably going to wake up with an injury. I'd go to bed and wake up hurt. You know, it's like, how does this happen? But, you know, all that being said, you know, the body's an amazing thing. And, and you know, with all the metal and all the abdominal surgeries and the shoulder surgeries and all the stuff that's happened to me, the upside is, bro, I'm. I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm happy. I may not be able to run as good as him or walk as good as you, but at the end of the day, I'm seven years old. I train every day. I eat great. You know, I hardly ever drink any alcohol at all, you know, and I don't take any pills anymore. Where through all those surgeries, the doctors are just banging me with these pills and different things. And, and the thing that stopped me, the thing that shut me down completely where I said enough's enough is when they hit me with the fentanyl stuff. Mm. They almost killed me with that stuff. So 
that's when I said, I'm done. You know, and I didn't even know they gave it to me, but morphine and Dilaudid and none of that stuff worked on my back. I'd had so many surgeries. If I just moved, if I just, if I see I'm just barely moving my little finger, I just moved my leg that much, I'd just scream like a wounded animal because everything was so torqued. Oh. And then there was one night when I don't know what I was taking. I guess they had me on the fentanyl things. You stick up under your gums and the patches on my legs and the lollipops. Remember one night, my body just completely torqued, and my head and shoulders were facing the opposite way. And it took a bunch of EMTs to get me out of the house. And when I came back, I said, "That's it. I'm done." You know. And I called one of my buddies in LA so I can. And they prescribed the fentanyl to me, and the insurance didn't cover it, so it was two thousand dollars every two days. And the pharmacist says, "I've never seen anybody on so much fentanyl and still be alive." And so that was the prescription they were giving me because my back was so bad. They cut on me so much and compromised my the, the structural integrity of my back by cutting so much bone away that I was just a mess, you know. And so one year, if I went to L.A., another buddy of mine in Atlanta said I can get you off it in six months. And I laid out all, everything I had. And I said, I'm going to get off this crap in two weeks. <gasps> two weeks. And I had these 150-milligram patches that go on my legs. And they would give me these 280 fentanyl pills, and they, you'd have to stuff them under your gums in the morning and then at night. And they were giving me 15 of these 1,500-milligram lollipop things to eat during the day. That's how drugged up they had me. And in two weeks, I laid it all out, and I told my ex-wife at the time, I'm going upstairs, bring me about 15 gallons of water, I don't want to see anybody. And first thing I did was cut the patches in half and put them on my legs like an idiot. And I called my pain doctor and told him what I did. He goes, take that shit off your legs. That's how people overdose. You know, because they're time-released. And here I'm cutting them in half and putting them on my legs, so I'm getting the full-blown. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, so I pulled them right off. Thank oh, my God. God. I mean, I called him right away to tell him what I did. And so that would have been my first mistake, you know. But I sat up there, and I was there almost two and a half weeks. And I sweated through the bed all the way through the mattress and stuff several times. I had people come in and, and check on me and I saw my ex-wife's teeth come out and talk to me and I saw a, saw a plastic squirt gum come out of her chest and this is Whoa. coming off the fentanyl wow. but when I came off the fentanyl I'd lost 35 pounds wow. and never well the only other time I had it was when I um, and I was clean completely done the only other time I had it was after a shoulder surgery when I got an infection they had me on a drip line I kept telling the infectious disease doctor, I feel like my light's going out, brother. Every time I do a two-hour drip in the morning and a two-hour drip at night, I feel like my light's going out, like I'm slowly dying. And, you know, the infectious disease doctor goes, well, I give the same dose to 80-year-old ladies. You need to man up. So I'm like, so I'm like okay. You know, I'll just I'll man up. And about day 13, I went down. And I, and I told my housekeeper, Jay, I said, Jay, I feel like I'm going to faint. And I just I passed out. Did the splits, balls and butt on the ground. Never done the splits in my life. Hip pops out, knee replacement pops out. And when I wake up, the MTs are sticking a needle in my arm. I'm going, what is that? And they're going, oh, we're giving you something for pain. I said, well, what is it? They go, fentanyl. I'm like, oh, my God. So, so they shot me up with fentanyl. I didn't even know it. But I didn't get back on the train again, you know what I'm saying? But since then, you know, after having 25 surgeries in 10 years since then, when I drink my coffee in the morning, if I'm really, really hurting, I'll eat two Tylenols. You know? mm. And then later in the day, if it was to get really bad, because I, I need a cup of coffee about four in the afternoon because I start to nosedive, 
sometimes I'll take two more Tylenols later in the day. Sometimes I won't, but done with it all. That's why the stuff we brought in, what I've seen with all my buddies and all my wrestlers, there's got to be a better way than these opioids and crap, you know. Do you uh, use CBD? Yes. Do you you take it edibly? Do you use it as a muscle balm? Like, how do you use it? Well, we got the... The, the drops and then we've the got drops. those the gummies the CBD gummies yeah you know, those are great sleep. yeah man they've helped so many people that I know with the dude I don't need with to take arthritis any, I don't need, yeah I don't want to bring it up but <laughs> yes that's uh, something else I've inherited from my parents because when my before my mother passed my mother lived to be eighty eight I mean my dad lived to be eighty eight my mom lived to be ninety and their hands were just twisted and crippled you mm. know and they and you know when I was in my prime, wrestling, seeing my parents all the time, and you know, because they live close by me, they say, Terry, you need to be careful with that wrestling. You know, it's going to make that arthritis kick. And I said, Mom, knock it off. I'm not going to get that crap. You know, and sure enough, man, <laughs> you know, it's it's coming. I can feel it. You know, does CBD help ward it off for you? Yeah, it does. It does. Do you use a lot of other stuff like uh, using uh, curcumin and turmeric? And yeah, bro. I take. I've like got that. a whole. I've got a nutritionist and a whole vitamin regime that I take and. You know, Did uh, you get some of that uh, turmeric coffee? When you, I don't know what I got. This yeah, coffee I think is great, man. That's what you got. That's the Laird Hamilton one. This is Laird great. Hamilton gave us a machine, and he he has all the like he's a that's the surfing guy. Yeah, right? this, he's a freak, like a real physical freak, and just the guy's a maniac about training and recovering and nutrition, and so he has this superfood coffee line. Where it's like uh, turmeric, uh, coconut oil, or coconut milk, and and he blends them into these different coffees, and it's just you press a button for whichever one you want. But they're all like super healthy food coffee, and it tastes great too. It's very addictive. This is gonna really sound weird to say because I've never admitted this in front of anybody, but I wanted to be him. You wanted to be Laird Hamilton. When I saw him riding those big waves, bro, that big tall blonde guy that was built yeah. like crazy. I said, man, I wish I could have been him instead of me. That's crazy, because you're Hulk Hogan. No. (laughs) Can you imagine riding one of those waves, bro, in the rush? I have uh, several friends that are big wave surfers, and I am in awe. I am in awe. I I can't. Just the risk you're taking and the the way they're able to adjust their weight and balance on a fucking wave of energy coming from the ocean. On a short board. (sighs) It's crazy. I mean, that's insane. Bro, you fall off, you may not come out of that. No, thing. you might be dead. You might get knocked unconscious by the force of the water. I mean, this the the amount of water you're talking about is so insane. You're gonna get driven to the bottom of the ocean for sure. You could bang your head off a rock. I mean, these guys are fucking maniacs. Yeah. And they're some of the nicest people. Do you surf? You know, I used to. I used to. My uh old attorney, Henry Holmes, old school gangster entertainment attorney, he was the president of the Malibu Surf Club. And right uh, there where the wall was, I spent, I kept a home in uh, Thousand Oaks and in Westlake for 23 years during my first marriage because my first wife's family was from there. So during the summer, I'd spend a lot of time out there when the kids were out of school. And Henry being my attorney, I was always hanging out with him and he took me down to the wall and taught me how to surf, you know. And those little baby two, three foot breakers real consistent right there. So that's where I learned, you mm. know, and did it for years i mean you know whenever we'd stop in hawaii you know we'd grab a long board one of the rental boards and go out and 
paddle as far as we could to dime ahead and catch that thing. I wouldn't ride it all the way back in unless I had a jet ski to pull me out because it took it was about a mile to get out there. You yeah. know. So yeah, I did it for a long time. But it's the only sport where you have a, a real possibility of interacting with monsters. Like you're you you're literally like doing a sport where monsters live. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. frightening. <laughs> oh yeah. Did you see the shark in the LA River that was raised from um, Hurricane Hillary? What? That's not real. Oh, it's not? No. Oh, no, I'm such an dude. idiot. Bro, I, I live on the beach, all right, right in Clearwater <laughs> Beach, Florida, the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And we have friends come over, you know, because especially when the sun's going down, they come in and they just kind of like, there's a Clearwater Channel, and then I live up the beach, but you can see them come down, you know, the coast, and they, they're going to the Clearwater Channel because all the fishing boats, all the chum mm. and the fish heads in there, and they're just, you know, from like seven to eight at night before the sun goes down, they're just cruising along, you know, taking their time. They'll hit something if it's in the water. So when our friends come over, if they have young kids or stuff, I, I don't want them in the water. Hey, fuck that. Even, you know, waist deep just in there. So it's kind of it like. It happens. It's a real thing. Yeah. I mean, they just found a shark in Idaho. They found a shark 500 miles from the ocean. I believe it was a salmon shark. It is very rare. Um, there it is. Idaho officials find strange shark on riverbank in the landlocked state. Jeez. That is insane. That's crazy. They suspect someone left the creature by the Salmon River as a prank. I wonder if someone, like, let it go. Like, someone had it as a pet and let it go into the water. But they know that there's certain sharks, like bull sharks, they can live in fresh water. You know that whole movie Jaws is based on what happened in a river? It's based on bull sharks in New Jersey. Bull sharks... Those are the worst, bro. There's something about them. They're very aggressive. But there's also something about their metabolism where they, they can breathe fresh water. And they just urinate way more. It's like some, they have like some different system. <clears throat> so they can survive and thrive in fresh where they just piss all the time. Well, they're yeah. the only ones that, in Florida that keep coming back and love yeah. the taste of humans. They'll come back and keep hitting you. You know, you'll get hit by a lemon shark or a tiger shark or a hammerhead. They may just bite you just to see what you are, and they could keep moving if you're lucky. But those bull sharks, they don't go away. They're, they're full of testosterone. Man, they just finish the job. What kind of shark was it that killed that dude in Egypt, that horrific internet video that everybody's seen now? You've seen that video, right? Where the yeah. guy's screaming for his father. Yeah. And he's uh, a tiger shark. Tiger shark, yeah. Those are, those are highly aggressive, too. There are a lot of those. Or what bites people in Hawaii? Yeah, we've dealt with a few of those. Woo! Uh, fuck that. I, yeah, I was fuck back that. back in the day. I was filming a show with uh, Carl Weathers and Chris Lemon. Well, two different shows. One was Thunder in Paradise, and the other one was was Assault on Devil's Island. Some two-hour TNT movies, you know. And we went down and had to do the whole Navy SEAL thing. And Stuart Cove, who was down in the Bahamas, the Shark Wrangler. I don't know if you ever heard of him. No, I haven't. But if you go to the Bahamas, you can go to his place, and he'll take you on a shark dive, and they'll put the mesh on you, and you can sit around the big metal can where he's got all the chum, and you just sit there and keep your arms in with a metal mesh on, and you can uh, have all the sharks circle you, and you get the shark dive experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, we used him for a couple of the shows, you know, and we caught a tiger shark about 7 in the morning, and he was very irritated. So all the stunt guys anchored him to the bottom tied a rope around his tail, a couple ropes on him, which was kind of like crazy. 
And Stuart Coe goes, oh, we'll come back later in the day and he won't be able to oxygenate his gills and he'll be real docile. So me and Carl Weathers are going, good, you know. And so um, right when we popped up at about 7.30 in the morning, because we, we were all diving, of course, and we loved being in the water. We were playing Navy SEALs and having fun with it. We were all certified. So whenever we could dive, we could. And we watched them catch the, sh- catch the shark, and then we came back up. When we did, there was this, like, 100-foot-plus Coast Guard cutter that pulled up on us. So what are you guys doing? And we were all making excuses. And if they would have known what they, we were doing, we'd have been in a lot of trouble. And so we took off. Came back later that day, dove down to where the shark was, and he was pissed. I mean, he was pissed from being tied down all day. And I, they needed one shot. They needed me swimming underwater with a, what was supposed to be a dead Navy SEAL on my back. And the stunt guys drilled holes in the shark's tail and put monofilament line in the tail. And as I had one of those little scooters, and as the shot came in a frame, I had a guy off to my right that was going to give me the the thumbs up one to turn around and bump him with a scooter. And we got the guy on my back, the stunt guy who had shark bites all over him because he works with sharks all the time anyway. <laughs> and he's got, he put chum in his BC, right? Oh, God. So I'm swimming underwater with these crazies and never done this before, so I'm listening to what they're telling me to do. And all of a sudden, the guy gives me the thumbs up, and when I turn, I couldn't even get the scooter under this shark's mouth. When I turned, I bumped him in the nose. He was so close to our heads, and those stunt guys jerked him with that monofilament line, and that shark disappeared like a magic trick. Jerked him like 10 yards away from me. Stuart Cove goes, he's got the camera. The other one, he goes, that was fucking great. Let's do one more. I went, fuck you. I'm going up. <laughs> yeah, so fuck I'm you. glad that was so great because I won't do that ever again. I'll never but, forget when that helicopter crashed on the Twilight Zone movie. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. That was the first time. It put in my oh, oh people die when people do stupid shit. Like if someone does something that's not wise or too dangerous, like that can happen. That can, that can happen in a movie set. That can happen on a TV show. It can happen. Yeah, oh yeah. People take they take chances, and they take chances with you, and that's a big fucking chance, man. You got a shark. Down. I mean, most likely the shark probably would have just tried to get away. You know, because it'd been, I'm, I'm, I don't think sharks fight, right? No. They probably just eat and kill, and it pr- probably would think it's in danger. And now that it has freedom, it would probably just take off. But still, it's a fucking wild shark. It's a killing machine. And things just happen anywhere. Yeah, things just happen, and you can't move out of the way. It's like you don't no. have, oh, Jesus, that's so Is insane. That that's so insane. That's it. Is that it? Yeah. Oh, cool. Dude. Well, there you go. How do you do this, man? How do you get this stuff? Jamie's the man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Jamie's the fucking man. This is... Uh, That's it, yeah. I can't believe you got it. <laughs> this is so dumb. Yeah, tell me about it. And then you wanted to do it again. Oh, my God, dude. This freaks me out just watching it. Yeah. Dude, it was people crazy. People get killed. This is, it happens. There was one time... There's been two times when I was filming Fear Factor that I told the producers, like, don't do this. And one of them was riding oh, bulls. Oh, I forgot about that show. I love that show. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, wow. I forgot you did that. They, Man, yeah, they that rolled some dice. Show. They rolled some dice when they made people ride bulls. Because I was like, you, you can't control this thing. You like, know what's so like, weird? Even when you don't expect it. Like, I went and did a couple episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger yeah. with Chuck. And he's sitting in there at 530 in the morning in the makeup trailer telling me about one of those Delta movies he made. Yeah. Well, the last shot of the day, the helicopter's taken off. And I guess he wanted to get home to his wife and kids and his body double, 
So Chuck, go ahead, man. Just go ahead and go on home. I'll get in the helicopter and we'll fly off in the sunset. Just need to get the lift off. Chuck's telling me he's in the car with his driver. He looks at the helicopter. It takes off. He watches it fall out of the sky and everybody gets killed. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that's how. So I'm scared to death the helicopters. Helicopters and horses. Yeah. I'm scared helicopters to death. Are, <laughs> helicopters are freaky. I went up in a helicopter with Bill Burr, though. It was fun. Yeah. We went all flew around downtown L.A. It's like it, the thing is, it's not like a plane. You can kind of go anywhere. It's really pretty amazing. You could just kind of float around downtown, yeah. and it's legal. I'm like, we could just do this? He's like, yeah, you could just fly over buildings. I'm like, that seems insane that you're just allowed to like go wherever you want because nobody's up there. Right. <laughs> it's, like you have your, it's like you have an open road, but you have a thing that moves very different than an airplane. But Bill does, you know, he takes like serious lessons and he's yeah. very good at it. And I knew what to expect and it was fucking great. I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I'd want to be in a lot of those. No, oh. God, no. No, if this, if this, if stuff goes out, it's not where you want to be. Yeah, they have recently can, in Hawaii. Yeah, you can glide for a long time in a plane and a lot of other things. You can survive on a boat if the engine fails for a while. Yeah, for helicopter, they have some sort of, I think it's called auto rotating. Yeah, but. But you're hitting hard still, no yeah. matter what. You're coming down. Yeah. Um, we did the thing in Hawaii where you go over the volcanoes. It's pretty fucking wild. It's pretty wild. And you have to do that by helicopter. But one of those just crashed. God, it had to be something really special to get me in a helicopter. I can't think of anything that would get me to go up again. Seeing the volcanoes <laughs> is pretty special. It's pretty wild. You're literally watching the island grow. Like, because I think it grows like a foot a year. You're, you're watching all the lava pour out into the ocean. I, don't, I might have made up that foot a year. How much? How uh, much does Hawaii grow every year because of volcanoes? But it's just insane to watch because we know it's real. We know that's how it was created. But to actually see the process, you're just like, whoa! That's the center of the earth. That's the the lava, hot molten rock is coming out and creating the island. Every year, it's lava expands Hawaii by 40 acres. 40 wow! Years. Wow! Incredible. Speaking of rock, uh, you mentioned uh, <laughs> WrestleMania 18. Yeah. And that, it, what's crazy is that it's one of the greatest wrestling matches of all time. Like, if I was going to show you, literally, and because I've thought about this, because whatever, a decade ago, when we would have our crazy wrestling arguments, I always I had to think to myself, well, what would I show Joe first? And it would be probably that right and you That's, it was it was a uh, definitely a moment i know the rock says he's never experienced anything like that before i don't think anyone's seen anything like that no, it was it was it was crazy man it was it was much different than i expected i'll put it to you that way how so what'd you expect well i'd been working for ted turner for like 10 years and i started that nwo thing with eric bischoff and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, you probably know who Which was shows. WCW, the competitor right. yeah. of the WWE. So we've right. been trying to put Vince out of business for 10 years. Yeah. And we were killing him in the ratings for like 83 or 88 weeks. You know, we were just killing him. Then there was a turnaround. He brought Tyson on. And we, we made a bunch of mistakes, you know, programming-wise. Like, we were live, live, live. And their stuff was all taped. And we go, don't watch Monday Night Raw tonight because Mick Foley's going to beat The Rock. And this guy, we, you know, so we'd give him the finishes, just dirty pool, you know. Right. So you need to watch the show because we're going to tell you who's already going to win, you know. And so after 10 years of this craziness, 
Um, I was pretty much done. You know, this was Hollywood Hogan, the bad guy, and I had this crazy run. It was just as big as the red, red and yellow run of, as Hulkamania was. It was just as big or bigger. And so Huge. at the end of the day, I was done, you know, and uh, Ted Turner merged with American Online. And where his office was, they kicked him to the curb. He was down at the end of the hall, so Ted wasn't in charge. You know, and Ted's the one I made the deal with, and Eric Bischoff and Harvey Schiller and all these guys. And um, so I wasn't I wasn't really going to do anything. I got a call from Vince, you know. And he goes, uh, you know, uh, we'd like you to come up and work with The Rock at WrestleMania. I said, well, yeah, I'm, I can still go, you know. If, if you need me to come up there, we can make it work. And he goes, well, you know, things, he used to call me Monster. Well, you know, Monster, but you know, things are different now up here. I said, what do you mean different? And he goes, well, you know, if you're going to come up here, you got to really bring it. Because, you know, the Rock, he goes, the Rock does this thing in the ring, like, bring it. And so I didn't say anything as a smartass. I'm thinking, if you want me to bring it, you're going to be asking me to take it back when I'm done with this bullshit. So anyway, you know, we went up there. Had the match. There was a bunch of stuff that happened before the match. It was a little bit different the weeks before. But when we, when we, when I went up there, what we did on TV was I did everything I could to be a bad guy. I was in Chicago. Place was just slammed in Chicago, just crazy. I mean, I had so, so many matches in Chicago, and the past accolades were so intense there that when I came out as a bad guy, the people were like with me, you know. And so all of a sudden, The Rock comes out. Gets in the middle of the ring, challenges me to WrestleMania. I go to shake his hand. He won't let my hand go. You know, he pulls me back in. And right when we're face-to-face, he rock bottoms me, you know, and, and dumps me in the middle of the ring on the back of my head. So here come my guys. I mean, you have to realize that the, this is, these are the most electrical moments ever, like, bro, in pro wrestling history. The, the, like, if you saw it on video, it, it, it these so, things, it this was, is... Push this up. This is the epitome of the entire what makes the entire thing entertaining because you're kind of rooting for both. Both are kind of bad guys, but have such likable qualities. So it's a win win no matter what. I mean, this stuff is beyond like this is that's this here is like totally top shelf pro wrestling history. I always love the two tone beard mustache combo. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, after he dumps me on my head. My guys come down, Kevin and Scott, and we just crucify his ass. We just, we unload on him, and we just grind him. So I go out of the ring, and I got a toolbox, and I dump the toolbox out, and there's this ball-peen hammer, right? So they got him hooked, and they think I'm going to hit him from the front. I go, and, I, and while he, they got him hooked, they thought I was going to blast him in the face with a hammer. I hit him from behind with a hammer, right? I catch him from behind. You know, I'm not, not killing him. I'm pretty good at what I do. Is it an actual hammer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bro, so, I, can, I can put this thing between your forehead. I won't even hurt let's you. Please not. But anyway. He's a professional. No, but listen. You're hitting him with a hammer? Yeah. Hit like, actually hit him with a hammer? Oh, yeah. But it's he's a professional. Yeah, I'm pretty. Believe me, I can, so I can hit like, you with a hammer, brother. You'd be good. You know, but. What? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a hammer. No, you know you know who first. If, if since this guy's so hurts. he's it's so like good a, at pulling stuff up, pull up Rocky Three where I get Stallone in the corner. I throw that straight in punch to him. Oh, okay, yeah. Because he said, "Oh, I don't want to get hurt." I said, "You just stand there and don't move." Well, this straight in punch, he goes, "I've never had anybody throw a punch that looks like it was going to kill me." It's, yeah, no, I think this is it right here. Look, 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 look. 
That was straight into his forehead. Yeah. He goes, you didn't even hit me. I said, well, I'm not supposed to. But I did make contact. So anyway, long story short, hit him with a hammer, drag him outside the building, put him in an ambulance, put chains around the ambulance, right? I go get in a semi-truck without the trailer on it, just the the cab of the semi. And, of course, as I'm getting in the cab of the semi, they pull Rock out of the ambulance. And I I run that ambulance over with the semi. Oh, my God. Vince goes, do it again, do it again. This so, is so hilarious. So anyway, you got the fucking the ambulance is chained up. <laughs> yeah. So dude, so now the rock's in there. And we just we slide him out when they cut to me. Here you go. And so at the end of the day, I did everything I could to be the worst, most evil person in the world, bad guy. And we go, we go get in Toronto for WrestleMania after I've done all these horrible things. Oh my God. Now I had to back up and run him over again. Now after I do all these horrible things. And I come out of the building at WrestleMania, and the place is cheering me out of the building. Yeah. I'm going, oh, my God, how are we going to fix this? Because the rock is splitting to go to the Scorpion King. And I'm passing the torch, giving him the rub, everything I can to help him be the greatest wrestler ever. You know? And because that guy was so good in the ring, bro, and I never worked him before, but second, third generation wrestler, instinct, timing, placement, he had everything it took us about seven or eight minutes. I got it all turned back around, you know, and he had certain input that we did. And I said, well, if some of that stuff doesn't work, we're not doing it, you know. But it was just the craziest situation because I mean, this is it. Dude. This is like the craziest <laughs> shit of all time. I mean, look, everybody's arms are up in the air. Tony is aroused. I mean, it's unbelievable. Like it's you. you have to realize that these, this is like it. Dude, the it two was, entertainers. It was so loud and Hulk, how yeah. old were you at this time? Um, I think I was 53 or 54. That's amazing. Yeah. And I had a hip replacement. And that two, is and amazing. Two, and two knee replacements. <laughs> that at 54, you were still this jacked. That's incredible. Another one. Another one. WrestleMania 18. After being in one, two, three. Three, oh, four, dude. five. And the next year, I took Vince McMahon at Safeco Field and, and actually had a blast with Vince. Got to beat the shit out of Vince. That was fun. <laughs> and he, bro, he's all in. Oh, yeah. That crazy nut was all in. That's he so, loved it. That's so nuts that he can do that still, too. Yeah, he's, I mean, so it, it was just so weird because all of a sudden, you know, the lines were just so blurry. Right. You know, going out there thinking that I was going to be the most hated person in the world. I went out there, oh, my God, we got a real problem here. But if Rock wasn't as good as he was, we could have never, you know, just it's just like I was in there with somebody that had been in the business instead of 40 years, like me, 50 years. He just had that that instinct that I've been in the ring with a lot of guys, and he, and he had it. When a lot of people didn't have it, he has it, man. So back in 77, when you first started, how did you get going? Like, what was uh, what were the first matches that you did? Well, before then, I drove the wrestlers crazy because they were coming in the clubs when I was playing music. Dude, I was scared to death of them. They're all 300-pound guys, teeth knocked out, cauliflower ears, beer drinkers. Just, I mean, there was no fluff Right. back in, in the 70s, okay? 
So I was a huge wrestling fan my whole life because Dusty Rhodes was down in that Florida territory and all that stuff. So one of the guys I went to high school with named Mike Graham, his dad was a promoter. He was a big jock in high school, and they all hated me because I was playing in a rock and roll band. I had longer, and I had two brand-new cars in high school. And plus, I was living at a hotel. You know, it's it just, you know, I just didn't really fit in. How did know. you have two brand-new cars in high school? Because the lady that was my babysitter, Leela Silverwood, when I was a kid growing up, she was president of Atlantic Bank on Dale Mabry in Tampa, and I bought two brand-new Roadrunners. They were like $3,000 a piece back in the day. So I bought a Roadrunner, a four-speed, little 440, and then I bought a date car, a Roadrunner with bucket seats, console, a little 383 car. And Lula Silverwood, who was my babysitter, I was like 17 at the time, gave me the loan, and she signed for me. The president of Atlantic Bank loaned me the money, and then she signed the note for me, you know. That's so, insane that at 17 you decided to have two Roadrunners. Yeah. An automatic and a manual, yeah, I'm a one big, for big, dating. Big, yeah, I'm a big Mopar guy, man. Still am. Yeah, I love Mopar. All my stuff's Mopar. I have a 70 so, I mean, What were we talking about? I forgot now. Uh, we're talking about the initial oh. wrestling matches that you had, okay, the first so, ones. So anyway, the backstory is I got used to seeing these wrestlers. You know what I'm saying? And Mike Graham, the, the, who went to high school with me, was a year ahead of me. I didn't really fit in with these guys, you know, so I went and I'd watch at the Sportatorium every week the wrestling matches, you know, and finally Mike Graham says, look, you've been coming here every week, you know, and I'd ran my mouth around town telling everybody I wanted to be a wrestler, which is the worst thing you can do. So at the end of the day, he set me up with a guy named Hiro Matsuda, a Japanese wrestler, and what they did was the first thing they did was they made me run. And so Matsuda got in a station wagon, he got like five or six feet behind me, and he made me run around Tampa Stadium two, three times, so I was ready to pass out and then they got me in the building where the ring was and they had me do jumping squats and push-ups and side straddle hops and jumping squats till everything was white and i was getting ready to faint then they threw me in the ring and matsuda got between my legs he stuck his elbow on my shin grabbed my toe and broke my leg oh god and said don't ever come back again they told me don't you ever and i had long ass hair blonde hair well you saw the picture of the band stuff they said, don't ever come back again. So I had a Ford Econoline van, you know, to put some of the, the music equipment in with a clutch. I couldn't drive it. So when my father got home from work. He worked construction for Azarelli Construction. He had to come down with my mom, and he drove my van home. And when I got home, I really got my ass beat. It was a little bit different, you know. And he goes, don't you ever let anybody hurt you again. So when, when he broke your leg, what, what, what specifically broke? Uh, the bone above my ankle, bone, bone above my ankle. He posted my shin and pulled my my toe. They did it on purpose. Oh hell yeah! So that guy broke your leg, and then you went home, and your dad beat you up for getting your leg broken. Yeah, that's fucked up. No, it's just old school, bro. It's just it's fucking no, no. It's that not. is fucking brutal. It's not fucked up. That's just how things are. That's how then. that's how you were built. No, that's totally how they took me then. But so anyway, make a long story short. Long story short, I, you know, laid around for three or four months, cut my hair short like yours, went back with the mindset that nobody's going to hurt me again. So they spent – I saw guys come through like – I don't know if you know who Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful sure. was. I saw him come through six weeks, and they trained him, and he started wrestling. I'm there two years. I'm there two years, and now they got me. So do you have to go back with the dude who broke your leg? Oh, like, yeah. Are you, and you're working with him? Well, not only that, I started taking him to Japan with me when I was wrestling in Japan. 
we became like best friends, bro. Wow. That's a certain amount of respect that goes along with this business if you're broke in the right way. And so. So he respected that you came back. Oh, even. yeah, man. They couldn't run me off. Right. They did everything they could. They, they weren't running me off now. You know, I don't want to go home and face my dad again. <laughs> I would imagine, though, you'd want to get that dude back. No, I was too Never? afraid of him. I was scared really? of him, man. He was like the master. Oh, he was the You're man, the student. Bro. Submissions, mm. all that jujitsu stuff. I don't know nothing. Mm. I don't know nothing about that stuff. I'm playing music, you know. Right, right, right. So now they spend two years teaching me how to wrestle, hooks, submissions, all that stuff. And um, wow, armbar. That's over in Japan. Wow. Oh, wow. So in Japan, did so, they like different techniques? Yeah. See, like in Japan, I didn't do any of the ear stuff or the, you know, the Hulk Hogan stuff over there. I would actually wrestle these guys, you know. Is that what they like in Japan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, well, a lot of, there's a lot of blurriness in Japan, too. With, there is um, now. With pro wrestling and MMA. Yeah. There was a lot of blurriness back in the day when Takata was fighting for pride. Yeah. Because Takata was a huge pro wrestling star. And that, they had him as the anchor of Pride. That company, Shinnapon Pro Wrestling, that I worked for over yeah. there, Pride was their partners over there. Ah. Sometimes we'd be on the card, and the Pride guys would be there. And I'm looking at, in the dressing room, looking at the lineup, it's all in Japanese. I'm going, a good buddy of mine, crazy soft to this Japanese. I said, who am I wrestling tonight? I hope it's a gaijin, an American, you know. Because I didn't mind wrestling the Japanese. I just didn't want to fight the Pride guys. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Because they were all big, man. They're back in the day in the mm-hmm. '70s. Those guys were like 220, 240. They were all big. Yeah, you know. And there's the pride was the Wild West too. It literally and Ensign Inoue went, and he had a contract that literally said, I think he said it was in all capital letters too. We do not test for steroids. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> They're just like saying, like we're trying to make the best product possible. So why would we test you for steroids? Have fun. Yeah. And so the pride days were the Wild West, and people just had insane physiques, and they could go for days. And some of the best fights of all time came out of that era. Those pride days, some of the best fights of all time. But the best example of the Wild West of pride was a guy named Bob Sapp. Oh, yeah. And Bob Sapp was 375 pounds with abs. It was the the craziest thing, and he fought Minotauro Noguera in like the most epic fight of I all time. I love watching him. And Noguera tapped him with an armbar. It was fucking crazy though. But he got pile drived on his neck, and his neck was fucked for the rest of his career yeah. from this one fight. Sap would get tired. He'd just start swinging wild he, haymakers. Have you seen him, Tony? Okay, you need to see this because yeah. it, it defies logic. Yeah. You, you look at the size of him. Go with Bob Sap versus Noguera. When you see how physically big he is when he's moving, you're like, this isn't a real person. This is like the Hulk. This is like a comic book character. Like, look at the size of him. Watch this. Look at the size of him. So this is the, the, right away, Noguera shoots and he gets pile-drived. Oh. Yeah. By a guy who's fucking enormous. Look at this. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love it. Bro, look at the size of him. He was such a freak. Well, anyway, as the fight goes on, Noguera actually winds up submitting him, and it's it's insane. That's but he crazy. takes a lot of punishment in the process. He gets the finally wow. gets on top of him. Bob Sap gassed out. I mean, yeah. you, there's no way you can have endurance when you're that big. Yeah. It's literally not even possible. He made a lot of money in Japan, I mean, man. You can have endurance for a little while, <clears throat> but you're never going to have endurance like a guy like Noguera, who's 230 pounds yeah. and, and, and natural. 
like you're going to eventually gas out. There's too much tissue. There's too much going on there. Yeah, he was a huge star in Japan. So, Giant. Yeah, he star. ran afoul with uh, some promoters and stuff, and it all went bad for him. But before that, they had, like, Bob Sapp dolls. They had, like, he was yeah. everywhere. He was huge. He was promoting so many different products. He was gigantic over there. Yeah, he sure was. But uh, those, those Pride guys, there was some blurriness <clears throat> back then because there was a few fights in Pride that um, a lot of fight experts were like, that looks fake. A lot of fans, a lot of martial yeah. artists were like, that looks fake. Like, something, I think that's a fake fight. And Every, I think there was some fixed fights. Everything got blurry over there. It got, yeah. I mean, it got, it was, it was like the wild, wild western in the 70s and 80s over there. It was so different, you know, when you went over there. They like to do a lot of freak show things. Like, they would have giant people fight small people. Yeah. They like to do, like, they have this lady, Gabby Garcia. Have you ever seen her? Oh, I have oh, at yeah. the, at yeah. the, uh, at the championships. Yeah, at Abu Dhabi. Yeah. yeah. When we went to Abu Dhabi. Yeah, she's so fucking big. She's like 240 plus pounds. Yeah. And they have her fight women who look like they just pulled them out of the like housekeeping and said, yeah. hey, put some shorts on. <laughs> You're going to oh, fight. Like, That's the, crazy. The, it's a complete mismatch. But they do stuff like that like kind of on purpose. Yep, that's a different when you wrestled in Japan, was it acknowledged that they had a different kind of style? Like, do, what what else did you have to change? Like, you didn't do the thing with your ear? No, no. Didn't do the and drop? That's why when I stayed with the Japanese guy for a couple of years, I didn't know how to wrestle at all. Nothing. You know, playing a rock and roll band, so they spent a couple of years. And their mindset was, this kid might turn out to be something because they couldn't run me off. Mm. You know, and so I kept coming back and coming back, so... At the end of the day, I got to where I was warming the guys up and all the fam the marks, like police officers or producers who wanted to be wrestled, they, they'd give them to me first because I was in crazy shape. I was like 245, right. 50 pounds. And I got to the point where I could do these exercises all day and I'd wear them out. Then I'd give them to Matt Suda and another guy named Gordon Nelson who was a crazy shooter. And, you know, we put wooden bars on the door so they couldn't run and escape. And we kept them in there. So they Can I explain to people what shooter means? Yeah. Like, th there's works and shoots. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, a work is a, a, you have a predetermined outcome. A shoot is like, that's like a real fight, right? Well, even, even with holds, it's like with a hold here, like a top wrist lock, ouch. He's going to kill you, Tony. No, this is, this you're dead. Work. You're a dead this man. work, okay? This is a shoot. Ah. Like, yeah, you know, I see what you're saying. Just <laughs> even with holds, even like with right. a deadlock. I right. Have a headlock on you. This part of my arm's against your face. It's work. If I turn my hand this way and put that bone across you. Right. Then you're trying to hurt him. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, I spent a couple years with him, and then they taught me how to do the wrestling where you hit the ropes and take a backdrop. And the first day they started teaching me, I started crying because I had no idea. I was so into this. I thought it was like full blown. You know, shoot, go after the guy. They had me programmed. Hmm. I mean, they had me beat down so much that I, when Eddie Graham, the, the kid I went to high school with, when his dad got in the ring with me, he goes, and Eddie Graham was a big star, like the Hulk Hogan, Dusty Rhodes star. And they called me and said, Eddie Graham's getting in the ring with me this week, and he's going to work out with you. I was scared to death. I'm going, oh, my God. Should I just quit? Because I've been through so much, I don't know if I can handle going in the ring with this main event guy. I thought he's going to kill me. When he showed me how to lock up and how to hit the ropes, I started crying because I knew they had been screwing with me. You know, I, it finally clicked. They've been torturing me for no reason, and they could have taught me this a year and a half ago. But 
But back then, their, their whole mindset was different. If you were a wrestler, they were protecting the business so much, they didn't want some guy to go in the bar and get his ass kicked. You know, they didn't, they didn't, wanna, they didn't want somebody that they didn't think would at least go fight. You know what I'm saying? If something went yeah. down. So long story short, it all worked. And then when I ended up going to Japan in, in 78, 79, I took Matsuda with me because he was like a god in Japan. And there was a mystique that the Japanese knew what had happened to me with my leg. They knew that Matsuda broke me in. And when I went over there with him, I didn't even have to wrestle. I was already made. Oh, wow. Because I was Matsuda's boy, you know. And so that was a good shot in the arm for me. Then a few years later, I took Classy Freddie Blassie with me over there. I remember that guy. And Classy Freddie Blassie used to wrestle a guy named Ricky Dozan over there. And Blassie had two sets of false teeth, one he'd eat with and another pair he'd file down on TV. Then he would bite the wrestlers in the head in Japan, <laughs> suck the blood out of their head, then spit it back in their face. <laughs> no, I'm serious, bro. I'm serious. And on TV Asai, <sighs> on TV Asai, the first weekend Blassie wrestled on TV, three old ladies passed out and died. Oh, at home. my God. Please, now, this I is a Fred video. Blassie story telling me. On this. That is insane. So, this is Blassie <laughs> telling me this stuff. So, now I've got Matt Suda. And I'm going over there with Blassie. And Ricky Dozan was the mafia guy. He ended up getting killed by a mafia guy over in Japan. But now I've, I got this backstory of Matsuda and Blassie. That's why I stayed over there 22, 24 weeks out of the year. It was like I loved it over there. That's amazing. Yeah, it was great. And they don't, don't call me Hulk Hogan there. They call me Ichiban there. Oh. Yeah, so whenever you see me with those black and silver tights, that's the Ichiban number one logo on my tights. And so – that's a, that's incredible. So that's a, what a great place to to experience the different styles of uh, pro wrestling too, right? Because like American style pro wrestling versus Japanese style, and then there's like uh, Mexican styles, different styles. Well, right? Yeah. How many yeah, different yeah, how yeah. many different styles of pro wrestling are there? Is it, it's bigger in America and bigger in it, Japan it, than anywhere else, right? Well, it's, been, it, it's lucha, lucha Libre is a different thing because when you see anybody in America, boom, they take your arm, they take your left arm. Mm -hmm. They always work off the left side, everything you do. Mexico, they work off the right side. Okay? My first time my first time I was in Mexico City, I was in that big arena that has the hole in the roof, in Mexico City, the big building. Yeah. And I'm in a six-man tag. They put me in a six-man tag for some reason. I don't do tag matches. I got two Mexican partners who don't speak English. And there's three other Mexican guys who don't speak English. They don't even tag over there. You know, usually have to wait to get the tag. They, they're just running out of the ring with no tag. It took me like 10 minutes to figure out that you didn't need to tag. Nobody uh. told me. You know, so it was just crazy. But the stuff they do is just like a whole nother level. You know, the Eddie Guerreros and Chavo yeah. Guerreros and all these guys, man, they're in Rey Mysterio. These guys are just supermen. Wild acrobatics. Yeah. Now and, and they can wrestle, too. I mean, Chavo's the man. He, he has his whole family. You know, was their their legends. Yeah. So in the seventies, when you were first getting going, the, how many different organizations were there? Were there like small local places, and then there's one big one that was on television? Like how many different organizations were there back then? Like when I grew up, I saw Florida Championship Wrestling. You know, and I saw that's the only thing I saw. You know. So that was like a local. Yeah, yeah it was just a local like, promotion. Was it cable back then? No, no, no. no. Regular it was just TV. local TV, and we didn't get Channel Seventeen, Ted Turner's cable, and we. And at the time, I didn't know that there was 
Madison Square Garden, New York territory, that is New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. And then there's like Minnesota, Vernon Gagne's territory. Then there's Fritz von Erich, Dallas. Bill Watts had Louisiana. Michael LaBelle had LA. So there are all these little teeny territories and all the, all the promoters respected each other. So if Joe Rogan had Texas, I would never come in to Dallas and try to run a show in your area. There are these imaginary boundaries that you don't mm. cross your respect. That was Vince McMahon <laughs> Sr. Yeah. And he was loyal to all these promoters. And every once in a while, he'd send like superstar Billy Graham down to Florida to wrestle or Ox Baker from New York down to wrestle. And we'd see these guys come in. And I didn't know where they came from. But they'd come in and the local hero like Dusty Rhodes would beat them up and they'd be gone. Mm. So I had no idea how the whole system worked. And all I saw was Florida Championship Wrestling. So after I got in and I figured out all these territories, you know, like I went to uh, Minnesota and wrestled, and I went to North Florida, the Fuller Territory, which is Pecola, and all through Mobile, Alabama, and Birmingham, that small territory. I went to Memphis and worked for Lawler and Jerry Jarrett for a while. But then when I went to work for Vince Jr., and I went back after being fired and having my first run in New York, when I went back in 84 to beat the Iron Sheik, Vince wanted to cross all the imag- all those imaginary boundaries, you know, and I went, wow, this is going to be dangerous. So Vince says, are you up for it? I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so Vince stayed in, in Connecticut in Greenwich in the office, and, you know, then I was booked in Lafayette, Louisiana. we pump our signal in there for like eight weeks. You know, prime example is Kansas City. I don't know if you ever heard of a wrestler named Harley Race. Yeah, of course. NWA champion. Tougher than hell, meaner than a snake. Great guy, though, okay? We pumped the signal into Kansas City for eight weeks. And Harley Race has been there like 18 years. He was the NWA champion. I'm the champion of the world, and he's a very proud and mean son of a bitch. And all of a sudden, here comes this blonde-haired idiot from New York going, hey, I'm the WWF champion. I'm the (laughs) WWE champion. I'm coming to Kemper Arena. And we're pumped the signal. So I come, I fly into town. When I show up about 2 in the afternoon, my guys call me. Harley Race came down here with a gun. And he tried to light the ring on fire. Whoa. And the co- had the cops ran, ran him up, and they didn't arrest him. I went, oh, shit. And they told me, Harley said, when I show up, he's going to kill you. So I go across the street, and I go to the Rusty Scupper, this bar, right? And I'm not- I was notorious at the time for not kind of like being on time because the matches would start like it. 7.30 to 8 o'clock, and they wanted you to the building at 6.30. I'd come rolling at about 9.30, you know, after intermission, and I'd have time to put my boots on because I don't want to talk about wrestling. I just want to go do it, mm. you know? It's like playing guitar or anything. It's like chess. You think two, three moves ahead. And so now I don't need to be at the building early. I damn sure don't want to run into Harley Race. And this guy's going to kill me. I'm scared to death of him anyway. I've known him since I was a kid, you know? So now I'm across the rusty scupper drinking bottles of wine, drinking bottles of wine, and now I got to go to the building, okay? So now I go to the building, and I had to go to the bathroom, and my stomach was killing me. So I'm sitting there on the toilet going to the bathroom. And I don't know if you know a wrestler named Davey Boy Smith, the British Bulldog. Yep. Yep. Oh, my God, the fucking king is here. The fucking king is here. He's going to kill you, Hogan. Davey Boy comes in and screams at me. I pull my wrestling yellow tights up. Don't even wipe my ass. Ugh. You know, as fast as I could because I don't want to get caught with my pants down in there. I want to have a fighting chance. I come blowing out of the bathroom. I turn around the corner. He puts that gun right in my face. And we're in Kemper Arena. And he goes, you know what? 
I should kill you, Hogan, for coming in here and doing this. And this is Harley Race talking to me. And then he puts the gun down. And he goes, but I really need a job. Wow. I went, holy shit. You know, holy shit. I shook his hand, brother. And I was a huge fan. Loved the guy to death anyway. But that's the type of stuff me and Vince were doing. We are going to other people's territories. And then, you know, you go through, you know, you go to hotel rooms and stuff. You never know when stuff's going to put crap in your bag or stuff like that. We went down to Puerto Rico. But anyway, Harley became a good friend again. And I knew him before I was a fan. He used to come hear the band play and everything. But anyway, like going down to Puerto Rico. First time we go down to Puerto Rico. I've never been to Puerto Rico before. All the boys tell me how violent it is. They cut you. They burn you with cigarettes. They throw everything at you in Puerto Rico. So I'd never been. I didn't need to go. But now Vince wants to go down to Puerto Rico. And Carlos Colon had the territory there for like 30 or 40 years. So here we come. And I go rolling down to Puerto Rico with Cindy Lauper with me, right? <laughs> so I go down to Puerto Rico, and we have the match, and we sell the stadium. Me and Macho Man go back to the room, and we go walk in his room, and his room is trashed. His room is trashed. And so all of a sudden, I go, oh, my God, let me go to my room. So all of a sudden, I go to my room, and I don't want to say the guy's name, but when I open the, the door... He's sitting there, because he's still really active, and he's sitting there with a gun. He said, if you ever come back here, I'm going to kill you. So okay. That, I was going back to Tampa. I hauled ass to the airport. I got on an Eastern Airlines flight, the last one out of town, and flew to L.A. Wow. I was supposed to be going home to Tampa. About four months later, Bruiser Brody goes down there, has a little argument. The booker calls him into the shower, cuts his throat, and kills him. Jesus Christ. So that's down there in Puerto Rico. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever heard the Brody story. The yeah, promoter that... cut his throat and Well, he was the him? booker. He was one of the invaders, um, Rodriguez. And uh, Brody was kind of hard to do business with in the ring. He's really stiff and would beat the shit out of you. He wouldn't put anybody over. And he was, you know, he was a big, big man, six foot eight, 330 pounds in crazy shape. And, you know, they wanted to beat him. He was, nah, not tonight, brother. You know. Wow. So after the match, they said, hey, Jose wants to talk to you in the shower. Brody went walking in the shower. He jumped him, cut his throat, and died right there. And all the wrestlers that saw it were afraid to go back and testify. So that's. Wow. So it, it, it can get crazy. You know? That's about as crazy as it yeah. gets. Yeah. So you guys were the first ones to break those boundaries and kind of barnstorm the whole country like that. Vince is a gangster. Bro, yeah. and that's such the, a gangster the whole country. Move. How about going to Germany or South Africa? You know, because they had wrestling over there too. How about blowing in South Africa and, you know, getting challenged by the South African heavyweight champion, Wilhelm Ruska, that judo guy? My God, it, it goes on and on and on, you know, with how crazy it got, you know. What was that like? It was different. You know, the good thing was everywhere I went, I had like the crew with me. You know, except for when I went to South Africa. That was a little different. But everywhere I went, it was always the crew and the WWE 20 or 30 wrestlers that were, were there. So you felt a lot better. Right. You know, I try not to peel off on my own too often. You right. Know, especially when we're walking someone else's backyard that they've been promoting wrestling for 30, 40, 50 years. And all of a sudden you come here. And they have the same sort of unspoken rules out there. And we broke them all. Wow. Yeah, I never even considered that as a possibility. 
that uh, there, there would be these territories. Well, that's what one I'm of totally. the main things that made Vince Jr. so famous and changed the game forever. Vince Sr. always wanted him. He basically, wasn't it like a promise, a handshake deal? You can handshake have the company, deal. son, but just please don't ever mess with the other territories. And Vince is like, like Vince okay. It's like Vince told me, he goes, if my dad knew what we were getting ready to do, he would have never sold me the territory. Yeah. Wow. I'm like, okay. He goes, you up for us? Yeah. Let's do it. Was the dad alive when this was going down? For a while. Yeah. For a while, he had pancreatic cancer. Ooh. And uh, he was alive. Like when I went back, when I went back, oh, God, it's such a crazy story. I hate to get into all this stuff, but it's all true. Mm-hmm. Like when I went back, I had just been in Minnesota, <clears throat> spent three years. Hulk Hogan had really that Hulkamania thing had started there. And I, I was on fire there. I mean, really on fire. And so now when I go back to New York, Vince had flown to my house. We talked about doing a deal. So I said, on a certain day, I'm coming back to New York. I did two, three weeks of TV. Then when I was supposed to be the Iron Sheik for the belt that night, Vince Sr. was there. And he always had these half glasses that he'd look over, and he's always clicking quarters together when he talked to you. <laughs> you know. And I'm standing there with Vince Sr. and Vince Jr. and myself, and Bob Backlund standing there, who was the champion that the Iron Sheik beat for the belt. Now the Iron Sheik's got the belt, and Backlund thought he was getting the belt back. And Backlund was my guy. I used to go to Japan with him and train with him in Japan when nobody else would run steps with him and everything in the hotel. All of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and Vince is clicking the quarters together, and he goes, well, I'm, I'm really thinking, you know, um, that I really don't uh, think we should do this tonight. We should put this off for about six months. And Bob Backlund pops up and goes, yeah, I think a real, real athlete should be the champion. So I'm looking over at him, right? And like, what the hell's going on here, you know? And uh, then out of nowhere, you know, I said, well, guys, I just had a huge bridge I just burnt down in Minnesota. I built a big bridge there. I'll tell you what, I'll rest the Iron Sheik's and I'll put his ass over because that's business, but I'm leaving. I'm going back and rebuild that bridge. Thank you guys very much for bringing me up there. I went back to the dressing room. It was about 10 or 15 minutes later, Vince Jr. came in. He says, oh, everything's okay. I talked to my dad. Everything settled down. I said, are you sure? Now what I don't know on the backside is when I leave Minnesota, the promoter, Vern Gagne, who worked there, the Iron Sheik, Cosgrove, Cosgrove Lazaria, whatever his real name was, he was a real bodyguard for the Shah of Iran. Yeah. He was the real deal, bro. He's got all these huge dents and holes in his head where they used to beat him and stuff when he was over there. What Little did I know, Cos, the Iron Sheik, broke in with Vern Gagne in Minnesota, right? So now I come to New York, and I'm going to win the belt, and Vern Gagne was pissed at me for leaving. So he calls Cos up and says, I'll give you 100 grand to break Hogan's leg. Right? And now this guy's a NCAA champion, the real deal. I'm not, you know. So Vern offers him a hundred grand to break my leg, oh my God. and we go in the ring. And I mean, I'm giving him my arm and take my head and take my leg. I mean, you know, I think we're working, you know, right. not shooting. And he told us afterwards, oh, you know what, Daddy, my accent's terrible. The Iron Sheik goes, but you know, Vern, Vern called me and wanted to give me a hundred grand to break your leg. But I'm a businessman. I just hope we can keep working. I said, brother, don't worry, we're gonna work together all the time. Wow, you know? wow. But that, I don't know if you knew about that. If you're a wrestling fan, but, yeah. I didn't know that he was offered a hundred thousand to break yeah, your leg. hundred grand. Smart move for him to not take it. You get a well, hundred thousand there, and then you guys never work together, and he's never anywhere near what he became. 
yeah. one of the yeah. ultimate heels of all time. Yeah, but these are all everybody knows these stories, man. These are also like, he's an athlete; he's not a hit man, right? Right? You know, it's kind of fucked up. Like you, no, you would, it's, it's a different business. You'd be surprised. Those, I'm sure. those rules don't apply all the time. Yeah, I'm sure. It's just I love the Iron Sheik. Oh, yeah. he's great. Yeah, I uh, I hung out with him one time in that uh, Toronto pot place. You know where they have that marijuana show where the, <laughs> the entire room was filled with weed smoke. Yeah, and the Iron Sheik got on stage with me. Yeah, <laughs> he's the man. I roasted him three times: L.A., Toronto, and Hamilton, Canada. I told him he's such a nice guy. He'd give you the shirt off his head. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. He was a freak athlete too, man. You ever see yeah. him do the uh, clubs? clubs? Yeah. None of us could do it. We all tried. None of us could do it. That's... I couldn't do it. Andre couldn't do it. None of us could do it. Andre couldn't do it. None of us could do it, bro. Those wow. clubs are like eighty-five pounds a piece. Are they really? Yeah, they were heavy as shit. He just manhandled them. Yeah, it, that's that's really hard to do those things. Yeah. I do them with these little twenty-five pound ones, and the, it's hard to do. And the longer the handle, more difficult it is to maneuver. You put them behind your head and do my cars. Yeah, dude. shield yeah. casting. You do this. Yeah, thing. that's it. Yeah, and then I do these. I do a bunch of different ones with it, but it's a very so, weird kind of strength. And when you watch yeah. him do it, it's like, he, he, I mean, he must have been spectacularly strong. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was a legit wrestler. Like oh yeah, amateur wrestler. Oh yeah. Yeah, Pan Am champion. I can't. He had, had a bunch of other accolades. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, think about how many like real legit. At Kurt Angle's a great example. Kurt Angle wins the gold medal with a broken neck. Mm-hmm. Won won a gold Dude. medal in the Olympics with a broken neck. Dude, I'm in the I'm in the ring with Kurt Angle, and we go to square off. He gets down an amateur stance. His eyes roll back in his head like a shark. <laughs> I'm looking at him, going, brother, brother. <laughs> and so when I first started working with him. I mean, you're you're supposed to make you're supposed to you know I work with a one man gang a certain way I work with Piper a certain way, people work with Hulk Hogan a certain way. There's a certain protocol to set a storyline up. You know, well Kurt Angle's just coming at me and taking me down and going behind me and yoking my shit up every night and it's this is going on for like three or four nights in a row and I'm like, I know he's kind of like green. He's just getting started, and he's got that amateur wrestling mindset. Yeah. And if you can't break him with that, he's not going to draw any money. I mean, as soon as Brock got that out of his head, he drew nothing but money. So Kurt's coming to me. Kurt's coming to me. I finally had to say, I said, brother, what is your deal? I said, I'm here to make money. I'm here to make a living. I said, what's going on with you, man? Why the first five or six minutes you're trying to grind me out here, you know? Well, Vince told me to screw you. I said, oh, really? Vince told you to do that? I said, I can't wait to get a hold of Vince now. No, but Vince put it in Kurt's ear. When you're on these house shows with Hogan and nobody sees you, you're not on TV, go out and grind his ass, you know? So that was a big thing for Vince. You know, if I was wrestling San Antonio tonight with no cameras, he'd sit Kurt Angle on me for the first five or six minutes. Oh, But why? Cool. What was the reason? Just for fun, just uh, a joke. Yeah. Because so we, all, we, all, we would all do that shit to each other. It's just a normal <laughs> wrestling rib, yeah. you know? Kurt Angle's neck looks like a waist. Yeah. It's like a normal person's waist. Yeah. Yeah, his, he's a monster, man. He, he just he, had both of his knees done, you know? Yeah, I, I was going to ask. Like, he must have experienced a ton of injuries, right? Yeah, good guy, though, brother. Really good guy. I mean, So he had knee replacements? Yeah. <sighs> Matt Serra just had one of those. Mm. Yeah, he's back to doing jujitsu. What is this? Kurt. Oh. oh, wow. 
Oh, God. He's wearing, <laughs> he's wearing, that's hilarious. He had a wig on. Oh, my God. This is so funny. Apparently, after we started working together. Hilarious. And then he put his. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> hey, Beast working a real job. What can oh, I say? fuck yeah. That's what a, what a crazy story about Vince and the taking over of the entire country. Yeah. I mean, it's just. I. I, I what, I mean, what wild ass times? Just wild ass times for the the sport. Yeah, I, I remember Killer Kowalski. Oh yeah, remember that guy? Oh yeah, Walter. We used to watch it yeah. on uh, like there was like a local Boston channel that would have local Massachusetts pro wrestling. You're from the Boston area? Yeah, that's where I went to high school. Dude, that old Boston Gardens was magical. Oh yeah. Man, I could just look at people in there and they would start coming towards the ring. All I have to do is just look at them and they'd come, man. It was, like, intense. I mean, I, I had some of the greatest matches in there simply because if those people are into it, you just go. Yeah. And you, you push it beyond, you know. Is the new one, the TD Garden, is that in the same place? Or is it a totally new location? Did, did they redo the old place or did they make, is it a totally new location? We were just there this past weekend for the UFC. Yeah, I've wrestled in it several times to tell you the truth. I didn't even pay attention. Some of the things that you do, like the hand of the ear and all that, uh, was that Vince or you, or you guys think of this stuff together? No, that was stolen. <laughs> um, that was stolen. From I mean, what? Yeah, well, um, this guy named Austin Idol. Um, yeah, he's, he's another guy that looks like Flair. Just like Flair, almost. And uh, I was in I was in Dothan, Alabama, one night, and I saw him just do this, and it was louder than any reaction he got from the whole match. I saw him. I said, "Oh, that's kind of interesting." So I just kind of like oh, I wound yeah. it up and started going and just place blue, you know. <laughs> and then when I'm on, when I'm down and they lift my arm once, somebody's getting to sleep and they lift my arm twice, and then I lift my arm the third time and I put my arm and I go. Stole that too from Dusty Rhodes. Uh. Saw him do that when I was a kid. Um, How about the Hey Brother? That was mine. Nice. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, say your prayers, take your vitamins. That's mine. Nice. The th the shirt tear well, that was an accident. I was in uh, the Rosemont Horizon, and I had once again a six man tag, and uh, God, who the hell was? Oh, I know who it was. I was in there with. Uh, who was I in there with? Jerry Blackwell. So a couple guys. All three guys were playing the Sheiks. I can't remember what the hell it was. And I was in the ring with these two guys, Greg Gagne, who was the promoter's son, and Jim Brunzel. I'm standing in the middle of the ring, and they just reached up and ripped my shirt off me. Each guy grabbed my shirt and ripped it, and the place went crazy. I went, oh, shit, that works. Mm. You know? And plus, I get tired of carrying on that big-ass robe and stuff. You have to carry an extra bag at the airport. So T-shirts I'm in. You know, so different things like that, you know. The Hulkamania thing, of course, there was Beatlemania, you know. And then all of a sudden, that guy that did the ear thing, Austin Idol, I heard him say, Idlemania, and he always do this with his face because he was a good-looking guy. Austin Idol, I heard that Idlemania. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to steal that, too. <laughs> you know, hmm. Oh, it all worked out well.
Yeah. Yeah. Do you like doing the other stuff too, like movies and things on TV shows and things along those lines? I used to, but no, no. not anymore. I, uh, I I don't know how many. I, I don't know if I've done 15 or 17 little low-budget kids movies or had cameos and, you know, I've got to have done three ninja movies with Lonnie Anderson and Jim Varney, Muffets, three, High Noon at Mager Mountain where I played Dave Dragon, the superhero. I've done... Gremlin movies, I've done... Baywatch? Bay, oh, God, yeah. I was partners with the Baywatch guys. <laughs> now, I've, you know, done different Tony things. has followed your career very closely. Yeah, but, you know, it's the thing was, it was the process. It's like when I first got with Vince, we took off, we did a, a wrestling movie called No Holds Barred. And uh, Tiny Lester, uh, you know, yeah. he was in it with me, and great guy, man. I love him to death. And... Uh, we just, it, but the thing was, other than that first wrestling movie that I did with Vince, I started doing a bunch of other movies. I did the first couple mov movies that New Line Cinema ever did, uh, Suburban Commando and Mr. Nanny. It's the first two movies I ever did. And then that guy, um, Jordan Belford, gave me money to do a couple of movies, that Wolf of Wall Street guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you pull up, like, uh, Santa with Muscles, you can see him producer credit, you know? So he gave me money to do Santa with Muscles and... Another movie, but I, I did like. Did you get a chance to talk to that guy? No, no, no I never did. He, uh, no, I take that back. I did meet him one time. I met him one time at the Grand Havana Room, and um, with Brian and Stan Schuster, who were running the Grand Havana Room in Beverly Hills. I didn't know who he was, and I was talking to him, and they said, "Oh, this is the guy that put the money up." And I did meet him, but you know, that was the only time I didn't have a conversation or anything. But um, I would like to know how much of that movie was made up and how much of that was real. Like, that movie was great. Like, were, were, you, were you really that out of control? That was a great fucking movie. Yeah. My problem was even when I did American Gladiators with Layla Ali mm -hmm. at the Sony soundstage, they would have my RV on the side of the soundstage. And you'd be in makeup at 530 in the morning, and you know how it is, and then all of a sudden... It's getting dark, and they've used you for five minutes. I couldn't stand the process. Right. The whole time I was yeah. thinking about it, I could be out. Doing a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially the wrestling, you know? Yeah. To walk away from that type of intensity and that type of money to be locked in an RV all day, I, I couldn't handle it, man. Well, I think if there's one thing the way, like, maybe you or I might look at it because it's just a thing we do kind of on the side, like, sometimes do it. But for those people, like, that's, that's like game day. This is what they actually want to do. Like, I don't have that desire for it. I'm on your like team. Like they do. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I mean, I'm glad that they do, that there's people out there that, are, that live for that because I like watching movies. <laughs> but I would imagine for you, part of the thing would be like trying to pick what to say yes to because you probably have so many different kind of ideas coming at you. Yeah, it's a little different. I mean, I've, I've had the same agent, Peter Young, for over 40 years. Wow. And at the time, my attorney, Henry Holmes, that we were like a team and um i think the reason peter's still my agent is because i say no to everything because <laughs> after you know the great life i've had you know in the entertainment business i just love being on the beach man you know i said can we get joe rogan to come to us man impossible <laughs> <laughs> you know so, <laughs> you know so i mean that's my mindset i just right. i just hate leaving the beach you just like relaxing now well not even that it's just i just you know, it's kind of like my girl that's with me now. It's like she understands, you know, 
and it, it took a while until she you, you have to experience it comprehend it comprehend it everybody has like a hulk hogan story you know and it's true now she she goes i get it everybody does and she's like people come and say hey man my dad just want to say hello to you. he played venice beach with played basketball in venice beach with me for five years Tell your dad I said hello and I still love him. I haven't played basketball a day in my life. You know? <laughs> or my dad grew up with you. I grew up I grew up in Tampa, Florida. Or my dad grew up in Tampa, Florida with you. He's the one that taught you how to lift weights and so, so tell your dad I love him, man. I, and I can't wait to see him again. I never lived in Venice Beach, you know. Right. But it's kinda like those stories come along, you know. Yeah. Like, do you remember riding next to me fifteen years ago on an Eastern Airline from here to LaGuardia? Yeah, brother, how you doing, man? The one that kills me, the forty year old guys come up to me and go, do you remember me? I you met me when I was seven years old. I'm like, dude, you look a little bit different now you know, than when you were seven. You got a full beard and everything. So, but it's 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 cool though because people yeah. are so nice and respectful, and most people are really really, honestly, just really nice people. Yeah. And and it's just amazing, you know. There's very few idiots out there. Yeah, it's, people, it is amazing. Yeah, it's just most people it's are just really nice. So many of us that you hear about the idiots, you know, and they do exist. But there's so many of us that you hear about it, so it's like, you know, statistically pretty small number of people. It becomes the thing that everybody concentrates on all the time, and it gives you a distorted perspective of people, of the human yeah. race. Like most, of, I mean, it's like driving a car. You Driving a car is dangerous. Yeah, but it's pretty amazing how good everybody is at it. It's pretty amazing that yeah. most days you can get around and never see an accident. Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with so many cars, there's thousands of cars that you see every day if you live in a city. And most days you don't see an accident. Like the vast majority of days you don't see accidents. You know? Oh, that's amazing. You mean, you might see one that had already happened, but how many do you actually see? Right. In your whole life you might see like a dozen, you know? It's kind of crazy because it's a difficult task that everybody gets, I, I think, it's just easy to get cynical when you pay attention to bad shit. And that's yeah, the, the news has always given us bad shit. Yeah. You know, like we always have things to worry about. There's an, and now they're talking about there's a new strain of the virus we have to be really scared of. I'm like, ugh. It's like every day. It's like new problems yeah. from all over the world and you're inundated by it. Yeah, and it's, so it's very difficult for people to just kind of chill out. That's yeah, amazing because like, the stuff I was looking at, they're saying, well, everybody's going to start wearing masks and we're going to isolate and yeah you know yeah there's some college just put reinstated a mask mandate which is like oh my god you people you're loving this mm -hmm. it doesn't <laughs> even make any sense because if you're a college that would mean you're an institute for higher education if you're in if you're an institute for higher education wouldn't you be paying attention to the latest data oh yeah and if you were you would realize that masks don't have a significant impact there's, that's not statistically significant it doesn't work and especially like regular ones. If you have like one of those K95 and whatever the fuck they are, and it's <laughs> tightly fitted, that'll provide you with some protection. Also, you're not supposed to wear it more than an hour a day. They're saying it's not healthy to just breathe through this fucking cloth thing all day. Mm. It's stupid. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane that these people want to give back into this mania again. It's like they miss it. It's weird, right? It is. It is. It's a weird victim uh, embracing mentality. It's almost like people who run a hundred mile race 
And after they're done, they're like, I'm never doing that again. And then two weeks later, they're like, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna do another one. <laughs> it's like they wanna, they wanna yeah. experience something exciting, whether it's being scared out of your fucking mind, whether it's showing the world that you're a really good person by putting a mask on. All of it is just nuts. So that that throws in the face of what I said earlier. I was like, most people are good people. They are. Most people are. But there's a good percentage of people that are out of their fucking minds. A good percentage. Just bouncing off the walls out there. Well, they're being led around, you know, by people that have a different agenda. It's also shocking how easy it is to just get people to just, just to believe nonsense. Like, hardly any work has to be involved. It's not something like, they don't. They just kind of, if, as long as like experts on TV say it, they go, "Okay, we're in." And then when it's proven that they're wrong, there's no sort of reconciliation. There's no there's no moment where they go, "Well, now I'm not. Now I'm gonna like look at other news sources. Now I'm gonna see if there's any experts and scientists that disagree with certain things." But you know, most people are just like, you know, if you're 40 years old, you got a mortgage, you got kids, you, you, you're working all day, you don't have time. You don't have time to be paying attention to this shit. You know, we're very fortunate that we're comics, so we have the day to do whatever the fuck we want, and we can read things that maybe, you know, we send each other or watch a documentary or something and get a new perspective. But the more I do that, the more I get bummed out. Right. It's like I don't want to hear more about the opioid crisis. I don't want to hear more about just nonsense that's happening in the world. It's just... You know, I don't know, man. It's just a very uncomfortable moment for this country, for, for people in general, I think. I, I just don't think that this access to information, the way we get it, is good for us. I think it just freaks us out. I think there's just too much going on all the time. Well, if I would have looked back, even, I was going to say five years ago, but if I, if I look back a year ago, I would never have dreamed where we would be where we are now with all the insanity that's going on yeah it's very strange it's like we're kind of awakening to first of all how connected we all are and we're also being integrated to ai and really quickly this chat gpt shit people are getting busted using it for school papers already and it's it's just so easy to get this thing to do work for you it's like why would i do this why would i do it and you can kind of see where the writing on the wall is going. It's like, boy, that shit's overwhelming. First of all, it overwhelms people's emotions with the social media and self-harm is up and suicides among young girls are up. From the, And they think that there's a direct connection to social media and what it does to kids. But as it gets more and more invade, I mean, it's going to become a part of us. Mm. And we're kind of the last generation that's ever going to remember what it was like before the internet we're the last generation because the kids today that's just what they know it's like we know electricity you know if you lived a long fucking time ago and electricity came about it'd be the most magic shit of all time it's just a very tough road ahead man it is but for a guy like you that you know came up pro wrestling in the 1970s I mean, for you have gone through all that wildness and to get to where you are today, where there's people are watching pro wrestling matches on YouTube instantaneously on your phone. It's a pretty amazing journey. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we did some great business, you know, with licensing and merchandising. I kind of wish the Internet would have been around when we were, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. once that first Hulkamania Red and Yellow run took off, it was it was pretty intense, you know, and that's with no Internet, you know. Yeah, and just, just word of mouth. Yeah, I mean, just when you go to Detroit, you'd have Edsel Ford there and Iacocca in the front row. Or when you go to L.A., you'd have Gene Hackman and Brad Pitt and everybody sitting there. So it was like, <laughs> it was different, you know. If we go to yeah. New York, Blondie was always backstage and everybody. It was just, it was a, it was a circus. Andy Warhol, everybody was there. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How did they get the word out? Were they doing TV ads? Were they doing billboards, like radio? What did you guys do? Well, it was mainly radio and print back then. Mm. And the launch pin was at uh, WrestleMania 1 because I'd been out and I'd uh, done a few episodes of the A-Team with T. And I think I did three episodes, and then they wanted me to come back the next year. They wanted to do the salt and pepper thing, you know, with me and T. And I just couldn't deal with it, man. T and George Papard were at each other's throats. They were, like, pulling me back and forth. You know, T's going, don't talk to him. And George Papard goes, let me go over the lines with you. And I'm like... You know, I was being pulled, oh, no. pulled back and forth, and it was kind of uncomfortable, you know. But I did meet my agent, Peter Young, there because he was T's agent, so that's why I've been with him so long. And then You just ruined the A-team for me. Now I know that George Papard and Mr. T didn't like each other. Oh, dude, they were at it full time. Now I'm so sad. <laughs> I can't watch old episodes now. Oh, my gosh. I'd be like, oh, who was the dick? Oh, you don't have to say. Oh, I don't know. That was I a rude really, question. I really don't know. I take it back. I Listen pity the fool, place. whoever it was. <laughs> I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Stop your jibber jabber. Bro, he was fucking amazing in Rocky Three. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, he was. He, he was amazing. He was terrifying. Yeah. Hey, woman. Since your man ain't got no heart, why you go to my apartment tonight? I'll show you a real man. There you go. What? What? Fuck you. That was, yeah, a, that was, that was a great team. That, that was good. Him doing the chin-ups, like, like he was a very convincing killer. Yeah. They did a good job in the ring, man, at WrestleMania 1. Um, I had a little bit of a problem with Piper and Orndolf back then, but they, they, uh, they, were, they ended up being cool about it. They wanted to kill him. <laughs> Who wanted to kill him? Piper, Paul, uh, Roddy Piper and uh, Paul Orndolf, the two guys we wrestled. That guy, Piper. Right, sure, I know Roddy. Piper and, and Orndolf. Because they, we hadn't had any celebrities come into our sport like that, you know. Oh, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted oh, yeah. to beat him up. Yeah, and so it was like a couple mad dogs. I was begging them, please, let's just get through this damn thing, you know. And, Did they go hard on him? Not real hard, but you know, T had a little, little bit of an amateur wrestling background, you know. The problem is, is when you're out there. You could do all the cardio you want. You could do all the working out you want. But something about your nerves will blow you sky high where you can't even get a breath. Mm. And, I mean, just standing on just the apron. Just adrenaline. Just, yeah, just standing on the apron. You know, I, I knew that uh, he would have a hard time with, with his nerves once we got out there. Mm. And so um, once he had that first little run the beginning of the match, and I got back in, I kept watching him on the apron. He was, he was hang-dogging, you know. He mm. couldn't get his breath back, and it was just nerves. It wasn't that he wasn't in shape. It was the nerves that got the best of him. But he rallied around, and we did get through that. But um, it was interesting because he brought a lot to the table, man, a whole lot to the table. 
Oh yeah, after Rocky Three, he was a fucking superstar. Dude, he was a he was a major star from that A team and Rocky. He was on fire. Yeah. Yeah, and I, he gave me a great rub, man. Me rubbing up against him made me a bigger star. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, he was uh, qu quite a character back in his day. There was always some talk about um, whether or not, like, uh, I don't. I don't I might be misremembering that. Like he never talked about like having pro fights or anything, did he? Was it? Was there ever anybody made big offers for him? Mr. T? Yeah. No. no uh -uh. Why did I think there was something? I'm probably misremembering this. There was something after Rocky Three where they were trying to get him to actually fight. I know he started out as a, as a bodyguard in Chicago. He know? was very convincing in Rocky Three. Yeah. He was fucking terrifying. He was yeah. so shredded too. Yeah, that was great. The A-Team was such a weird show. <laughs> you know, those guys driving around in a van, like, solving yeah. problems. I've got, I've got a bar in uh, Clearwater Beach called Hogan's Hangout, right? Monday nights are, are monster, monster nights because we have karaoke there, right? And I've got a Mr. T guy. The kid's about 6'2". He's got all the, the jewelry on, of course, it's not the real stuff, and he's got the mohawk, and he looks a lot like T, and he drives the van. <laughs> he's got the gray van with the red wing on the side. He drives the A-team van. I mean, you could see him at the Bucks games, at the Rays games. They've always got him on camera, but... That's a weird thing to stick with. Yeah, well, he's sticking with it, man. It works for him. That's hilarious. But he comes to our karaoke, and it's kind of funny when he walks in. The place goes crazy. There's something about those TV shows, those nostalgic TV shows. They they do make me happy. Going back and watching like an episode of like the A Team, just because it's it's like a capsule in time that it's never. There's never they're never gonna make shows like that again. Like that. There's never gonna be a Dukes of Hazard again. You know, there's never gonna be any of those shows. Like when you what you're watching is like a weird peek into a time before there was an internet, and what people were just a little goofier. They were just a little goofier. They, yeah. They they didn't need their entertainment to be so multi-layered. It didn't have to be Stranger Things. Oh, what's up? What show is this? It's the A-Team. Is this you and the A-Team? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. You got to nail him, Hulkster. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm fine. Do you, can you find out what year that was? Look at you. I can actually run. And there's the van. Oh, what? no. I'm sure they'll be all right. Yeah, but what's worse, them catching them or them not catching them? Like, even the acting. <laughs> yeah. They're acting like someone pretending to be acting. Yeah. I think it's the directing. Like, how do you see that and go, that's it. Let's move <laughs> They're on. They're on Coke. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Hollywood was all on Coke back then. Yeah. Budget restrictions. There's like a, there's a moment in Hollywood history where you watch some of the films. You go, oh, they were on Coke. Like Showgirls. You ever see Showgirls? Yeah. For sure someone was doing Coke. <laughs> Whoever fucking wrote that movie and, and produced and directed that movie. That, that movie's, if you watch that, like with like a, like lately, no, it's insane. It doesn't even seem like a real movie. You're watching like this is crazy. It's like they were doing a very subtle parody of a movie. That's what it's like, and that's just cocaine. It's like <laughs> cocaine made that movie. Strong. I'm just guessing.
I'm just guessing. No accusations. But there's a, f a fun time in, you know, Hollywood where you could see, like, certain films look like people were on coke when they were making them. They just don't make any sense. <laughs> they just... You guys ever take a pee break? Yeah, take a pee break. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. That coffee and this thing's got me. Listen, yep, absolutely. Let's go. So, <clears throat> so we're back. We're back from the piss break. Thank God, because I, I think I was rambling about nonsense. We were talking about uh, the, the just the crazy times that we live in. Um, are you uh, are you doing any like fan things where you do uh, meet and greets and stuff like that, where people can come out to meet? Because you're like one of those guys that like everybody wants to meet. There's like bucket list people. If you're a pro wrestling fan. You're on the Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I kind of I don't do a lot of them, you know. Um, once again, not to be repetitive, but the sports company I work with, Darren Prince Sports, you know, um, he tried to get me to work. I mean, his story is he tried to get me to work with him for almost 20 years. I wouldn't do it. I just don't. Um, I'm not one of the weekend warriors, you know, that kind of like now that I'm done with the wrestling, I go out and sign autographs and do that stuff. I just really don't do that i made like last year i think i did one you know oh wow like a big one in chicago and then i've got these little retail stores where i sell um i got one in clearwater beach i've got one in orlando where i sell t-shirts and memorabilia and stuff to the kids and wrestling fans and usually like once a year sometimes twice a year i'll do an autograph signing in clearwater and one in orlando but i just don't make the rounds that much and, and go out every weekend because I mean I could work every weekend signing autographs at comic cons and different things and, mm. but I just really have never done that what are you doing the majority of your time these days it's a good question I seem to be busy all day long <laughs> you know uh, my day starts out with training every day I train a couple hours in the morning and so everything's what everything kind of stuff you're doing <clears throat> it's weightlifting you know, and everything's a compromise. I have no Olympic bars at all. And, uh, you know, I have a, a rack of dumbbells, and I have uh, straight bars and easy curl bars. And, of course, the old school I carry in machines, all my equipment's about 40 years old. You know, the good stuff. A lot of strive stuff, you know, chamber cam stuff where you can train around injuries. Mm -hmm. Like for biceps that are torn everywhere and all the holes I have in me from tearing stuff that I never fixed. You know, there's there's a chambered cam that you can hit the peak and the top, but you can eliminate this part if, if it's the weak part of your arm. Oh. Training around injuries. So I do that, and then I kind of like get rolling, man. I just, I'm a beach bum, you know? <laughs> I just love being on the beach and just stay busy. Um, the lady I'm getting ready to marry, you know, she changed my life. She's got three kids, you know, and um, I just, on paper, we've talked. You know, 70-year-old man with a younger lady, 47-year-old lady with three kids, you know, um, 16, 14, and 9, on paper doesn't work at all, you know, because I'm just way too old for that, but I fell in love with the kids, you know, and so it's just, I just love having people around, and, you know, fell crazy in love with her, so, you know, a lot of the stuff is her and I figuring out what we're going to do, where we're going, you know, we love to go out and eat and hang out at the beach, and she likes to train too, and then her kids are like a full-time job, and um, I do a lot of stuff on the phone. You know, I make deals on the phone. You know, I could have like a, I could sit in my office and have a $50 day or it could be a high seven digit day depending on where, where we're at with this stuff, you know. So uh, I just stay busy all the time, you know. And it's, uh, I'm still under contract with the WWE. And 
just have had a ton of licensing and merchandising stuff. You know, I think, I think when I was the world's champion, I had 300 licenses of 300 different products, like watches, headbands, frisbees, tennis shoes, potty seats for kids, chalk, kites, you name it. I had it, cameras. I had like 300 licensees now that I'm not the world's champion. And I haven't wrestled for quite a long time. I've got like 800 licenses, you know. Wow. It's just insane. It's, like, it's kind of like what's old is new again, you know. Mm. And they're kind of like, I feel like I'm the, the Elvis is not dead yet. You know, the way they're licensing and merchandising right. me. <laughs> so I know when I kick the bucket, my stuff's going to go through the roof. Oh, through the roof. You know? But, yeah. yeah it's, I mean, I stay busy with all kind of craziness, man. You know what's really encouraging to me is that despite all the physical abuse your body's had, your mind is very sharp. And even though you've gone through this whole fentanyl problem, you know, the opioid thing with people with injuries, my God, it's so legendary. So many people have had those issues. But you came out of the, the other end, and you seem clear as day. Well, I, I don't have an addictive personality, you know, because I'm either all the way in or all the way out. Mm. And you got to realize that all these wrestlers, and I, I don't know the numbers, but, you know, if you said football, how many wrestlers have died in the last 25 years, the number could be 10 or 20. You know, if you said baseball, the number could be 10 or 20. But when you say wrestling in the last 30 years, it's a couple hundred, mm. like 250 guys that have heart attacked, overdosed, this, that, and the other. And I was the ringleader, yeah. you know. I was definitely the ringleader, and I ran real hard. But I just kind of knew when we got to the edge, I knew when to pull back. So you know? what was, was this partying, or is this, did it start with injuries and then lead to? It's the schedule. It the was schedule. the schedule, first off, and not have any real rules. Because, like, <clears throat> it's like Vince McMahon runs the show, Okay. And so when, let's just say, Roman Reigns goes out, who's one of their biggest stars now. I don't know if you guys are familiar with what's going yeah. on now, but Roman Reigns is a huge star. And when he goes out to wrestle somebody like Dolph Ziggler, you know, the referee or, or Vince, whoever's the, the, the agent, will say, Roman Reigns is going to beat you, Joe Rogan, with the sleeper hold or something, or Superman punch. Okay, fine. Well, back in the day, you know, when we first started and Vince took over, I'd go to the Philadelphia Spectrum, and Vince would say, okay, I want you to beat Piper with a leg drop. So, okay, I'd go tell her, hey, Roddy, you know Vince wants me to go over and beat you with a leg drop. He'd go, no. Okay. Well, what do you want to do, Roddy? You know? And then I'd have to explain business to a lot of guys. And I love Roddy to death. We hated each other for years, and then we became really, really close before he passed the last five or six years. And so I would always tease him when we became friends. I said, Roddy... Like when you didn't want to do, I, and I, Randy and I would flip the belt back and forth all the time because Randy would do business, you know, and if I needed the belt back after a movie, give it back, then I'd drop it to him again. <laughs> and, and I told Piper, I said, you made a lot of money, but can you imagine how much money, I mean, you got eight kids or seven or eight kids. Or, I said, can you imagine how much money you would have made if you'd let me beat you one time? Then I could have went to Vince and said, hey, we can trust this guy. Let's put the belt on Piper because I don't need the belt. Right. I got the gimmick, bro. I'm all through right. my stuff. I was locked in. I needed somebody to take the belt so I could chase right. him. Right. Because if I can put that belt on you, I see a big dollar sign there, and I'll chase your ass all over the place. Right. I said, Roddy, can you imagine how much money you would have made if you let me just beat you once? And then you come to WCW, and I'm a bad guy. You beat me every night. Big deal. I mean, it's, right. it's a work, brother, you know? Right. Yeah. It's all about the money and the miles. If there's money to be made, let's make it, brother. You know, so throughout all this stuff running with these guys— 
I saw them all drop off, you know, one at a time, one at a time. And it was the schedule, which is very taxing because we were running really hard back in the day. It was, you could go to Austin, Texas tonight. Hey, Doc, I hurt my back, I hurt my back. Okay, uh, Piper or Hogan, here's 30 perks. And the next night you're in Chicago. Hey, Doc, I hurt my back. Oh, okay. Mm. You, every single town, there was a doctor, you know. And that's how this whole thing got started, you know. And mm. then, you know, all of a sudden it ends, you know, for whatever reason. You go get a couple DUIs or you get in a fight hurt somebody really bad or whatever the case may be and all of a sudden you're either too old or you get injured or you hurt somebody you do some some stupid legal stuff and your career ends and then you go home and you don't fit in at home because you've been gone for 10 or 12 years and your wife's raised the kids you walk in you don't fit in so dad's home now so what are you doing here right. you know, and, you, and you don't fit in and then that's when the drinking and and you know then there's that no I, I tell my girl all the time I said, I get this crazy turbulence in me, you know, and it hits me like at seven or eight o'clock at night. I get like, if it's another man, I'm real good with turbulence with another man, but just with normal, you know, people, you know, like her, I don't want to start anything with her or pick, pick, pick at her, but that turbulence from every night going from playing cards with Andre, you know, at nine o'clock at night until 10 minutes later, somebody kicking you in the head, kicking you and stomping you and beating on you. Yeah. And coming up, raw. So do you crazy. think your body was like programmed to get ready to do violence yeah. at night? Yeah. I could wow. go from sitting here talking to you like this and two minutes later I walk out there and I'm spinning around, spinning around. When I slide it on the ropes, this bad guy stomping me in the head. And you got to make that adjustment. So all of a sudden at night, I'm sitting around at eight o'clock at night and I'm going like this. That's I'm watching American wild. Idol. I'm going, what is wrong with me? I can feel this turbulence ramping up in me. And that's why I got the gym in my house because sometimes I'll go downstairs and I'll, I'll yeah. crank at night just, you know, because yeah. when you're used to breaking that sweat every night yeah. and wrestling a guy your own size and physically getting completely worn out to where you're like, okay, now I can relax. I've had enough, you know. Yeah. You miss that. And a lot of these guys go home after doing this. They don't know how to adjust. And all of a sudden, they adjust with over-medicating and mm -hmm. drinking, and then they really don't fit in at home. And the next thing you know, there's a tragedy, or they do too much, too many songs, or too much blow, mm. or too much this. And it's just been a repeat scenario in our business. So for me, you know, talking about all this negativity and, and the stuff that's going down, my life is really good, brother. I mean, you know, I might have some physical issues from all the surgeries, but I'm healthy as a horse, you know, and at the end of the day, I train, I eat good. I mean, I'm, you know, I really have a great outlook on everything, you know, and I have my... You look good. You look healthy. You really do. It's great to see. Well, I mean, you know, I just turned 70. That's amazing. And, and a lot of guys that, you know, I, that are around that I went to high school and I see them, they look like they're 95. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... I had some guy come to me the other day, hey, we got the same birthday, we're the same age. I looked, and it was at, during karaoke in my bar. And he goes, we're the exact same age. I looked at him, bro, he was like 100 miles of bad road. Yeah. And I'm like, what did this guy do People to himself? People stop moving. They stop moving, they stop well, taking care well, of Well, that's themselves. what Willie Nelson told me. He said, Hogan, if you slow down, you go down. But you look know? at fucking Mick Jagger. Um, we went to see Mick Jagger last, we went to see the Stones last year. Yeah. And it was, Mick Jagger's Biden's age. And he has two trailers that he brings everywhere he goes that are just exercise equipment. Wow. This guy trains every day. That's he trains crazy. every day. 
and that's that's how you can still move around like that when you're 80. He's up there dancing and yeah. shit and singing and putting on this amazing show at 80 fucking years old. Yeah, but you know? I, I think a lot of it's mindset too, you know, because not to Bible thump you to death, bro, but I keep I keep one foot in each each zone, man. I keep, you know, in this human incarnation, I keep one foot, you know, kind of like in the human incarnation. I keep one foot in the spiritual incarnation, you know, mm. and when stuff goes down or this goes down or things go wrong in my life, I deal with it, you know, as efficiently as I can. I, then I bracket it and I go back to center, you know. And I've got this crazy relationship with God, brother, and I've got this crazy relationship spiritually with who I am and, and why I'm here. And so all that takes precedent over all the noise. Mm. You know, the border and this and the criminals and the crooks mm -hmm. and the government. And I, and I, I, I listen to it, and I kind of I am really, really aware of what's going on, but then I go back to center. Yeah. You know, I go back to center because I've got a whole bunch of opinions about certain things and at the end of the day my most important thing is to know what my number one priority is and stay centered and stay as close to god as i can so that's why i look at things really positively you know and i am bro mm. my girl out there has corrected me so many times i'm not trying to you know say anything weird or anything but there's so many times where i can go the wrong way quick and it, when I go one way quick, I'm all in, you know, so I got to be careful. Mm -hmm. So if I start deviating a little bit, you know, there's certain people that can talk to me. Okay, well, it's not that bad. Or just, just think about the big picture. So. so you know these guys in the cartel? They're cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm just saying, what I'm trying to yeah. say is all the stuff we've talked about. Yeah. When I look at everything around me, I go back to where I'm at. I'm going, man, life is good, brother. I think this this is a very important thing for people to hear because there's a lot of people that dismiss religion. Um, because they think they're too smart for it. I think there's a there's a great value in being connected to whatever you believe. If you believe in God, if you be believe in Allah, if you believe in whatever whatever you believe, there's a great value to believe that there's a higher power and that there are like there's good ways to live life. There's a there's a correct way to live life, and it does bring you more peace. And it can, it does really work. And so for a guy like you to say that, I think is it's important for people to hear. Because I think when I was younger, I, I always dismissed religion too, because I kind of dismissed it as stories that were written by people. But that's not dismissing God and the idea of God. It's like, we don't know what is going on in this bizarre life that we live. Mm -hmm. But I do know that a lot of people that I know that are very happy and grounded and centered are also religious a lot of people i don't think it's a factor that anyone should discount and um the people are very smug about it you know they're too smart for that you're not going to trick me you know that kind of shit when did you uh were you always religious or when did you start becoming religious well you know i kind of like would go to a southern baptist church when i was a kid because i i went to Bottles point elementary school in tampa and right across the street from Ballast Point was uh, Ballast Point Baptist. And my kids, my, not my kids, my mom and dad took me to church one time there, and I was hooked. My parents only went once with me, but it was close enough to my house. Where, you know, back in the day, bro, in the 60s, you could ride your bike anywhere and stay right. out, even when the street lights came on. Nobody's going to steal you or kidnap you or anything. So we'd just stay out throwing rocks at each other and raising hell, you know. So I would ride to Ballast Point Baptist Church 
every Sunday. And, you know, I kind of like going there because a lot of the kids from elementary school, their families would go there, you know. Right. And so I would go there to Ballast Point Baptist. So I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. And then when I started playing in a rock and roll band, when I kind of like got in junior high and stuff, I kind of like wasn't going to church at all. And a couple buddies of mine who became ministers, there were twin brothers, Ron and Don Satterwhite. They um, asked me to come to uh, Hank Lindstrom's youth ranch because all the kids were there. It was like a a Bible study thing and Bible bros and all that stuff. And they would all sing, but they didn't have anybody to play guitar. So they knew I'd play guitar. So I went there and I'd play all the, the, you know, three chord progressions for the little Christian songs and stuff. Right. And then this this minister, Hank Lindstrom, hit me hard with the John 3.16. You know, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed, you know, that he gave his son will not perish but have everlasting life. And I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 14. But then I derailed, you know, kept playing music and rock and roll bands and got way away from my faith. And then as the years went by, you know, I started seeing how things went. And it's got me to the point now where I'm locked back in. I'm locked and loaded, you know, after all the life experiences and, you know, seeing how people live and what money does to people, you know, and, you know, okay, money makes it easier, but it's not the live and die all situation that some people say it is, you know. And it's just that that relationship I have, not so much with religion, but with my Lord and Savior is what I function on. You know? When did this, was this a gradual transition to coming back to your faith, or was it Yeah, was it, it was, it was. And the thing was, the Hulk Hogan character kind of pushed me in that direction. Because that crazy character, that Hulk Hogan character, that was all the way up here, forget the Americana, forget the blonde hair, forget Venice Beach, California, forget the tan. It was the three demands of the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. Bro, I'm captivated captivated by that left bicep of yours. Who the size of these oh. fucking things? Still. See his hands? 70. See his... Give me a gun. Give me that left gun. Left? Let me see. Oh, come on, look, man. I'm all out of gas. Look at this, dude. Just, just, look at the size of his fuck. Jesus Christ. The motherfucking 70. Oh, my, tri- my triceps are still Insane. huge. Hold on, man. Let's see if I got any tricep back here. Hold on. He's got to pull it out. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Look at the size of that thing. Yep. That's like a, like a rabbit burrowing under your arm. <laughs> I forgot what I was saying, man. You sorry, me. sorry. You look fucking amazing. What was... Oh, the character Hulk Hogan. Yes. The training, the prayers, and vitamins. It took the man, Terry Bollea, and started bringing me up because all of a sudden I hit on this character. Train, say your prayers, and your vitamins, believe in yourself. The four demandments, brother, to be a Hulkamaniac. I hit with all that stuff. Right. I was out running around drinking, smoking weed, doing Yahoo, going crazy, running wild with my boys. And all of a sudden, all these Make-A-Wish kids want to come see me. And I had years where Michael Jackson, Mr. T, Mickey Mouse, I saw more Make-A-Wish kids than any of those people. And all of a sudden, the character started making me a better person. You know? Wow. And the character, this fake character of the training person by him started making me a better person and I kind of realized that kind of really really worked and then um, I bottomed out you know with my first marriage um, there was a situation where I get through this I, I was the person that thought when you do this contract under God for better or worse till death was part I thought you're supposed to be serious about that 
You know, so I, I used to brag. I'm the only Wills champion that was never divorced. I used to brag about it. Flair's been married 29 times. All my boys have been married 29 times. Everybody's been married 29 times. Right. And all of a sudden, when I went through this divorce and I really bottomed out, you know, it was a tough one. And then my wife split with a younger younger man. It was, uh, it was a little rough on me. And then I started searching. I started searching. And I watched that movie, The Secret. You know? Oh, wow. And all of a sudden, I kind of like watched it and, and bought into it. Then I had a Mercedes at the time, and I had my buddy who had a car sh- stereo shop deprogram the navigation, and I put the secret in there. So every time you started the car, the secret would come on, on the navigation screen. Really? Yeah. So I probably saw it and heard it 10,000 times, okay? And then I saw what the law of attraction was. It was a natural law that not only does science say it works, and the Bible says it works. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. We're talking about relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about money, we're talking about health, we're talking about everything. You know, you attract what you think. Everything comes from the heart, your tongue speaks what the mind's thinking. So at the end of the day, I saw that that law of attraction is actually a scientific law that we're given such as aerodynamics, you know, how a plane will stay in the air with the wind going over the top of the wing faster than underneath. Buoyancy, you know, how buoyancy works. Mm-hmm. And then gravity, it's working right now. You're probably not even thinking of it. But, I'm not thinking of gravity. Okay, I know you're not, but gravity works too. And also the law of attraction works too. The rich get richer, poor get poorer. Like attracts like, you know? And so at the end of the day, after seeing the secret thing and having it beat in my head, I went, hmm. This guy named James Ray, who went to prison for that sweat lodge thing. Sweat lodge thing? Yeah, he had a sweat lodge oh, thing. Oh, yeah, people died, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah James Ray, he, he, he at the time said something that really hit me hard on that secret. He goes, there's probably things in your life that you're not proud of, and there's probably a lot of things in your life that you are proud of, but when would now, and he said the word, when would now be the time to change? And I went, I mean, you can change your direction of life by changing your thinking? And I went, you gotta be kidding me. So anyway, I started praying. I wanna meet James Ray. I wanna meet James Ray. And I, I, and, I, and you think like it's already done. It's like when you pray, right. you don't pray like, oh, please, no healing my back, I'm hurt. No, you say, thank you, God, for my perfect health, for my healing. You pray like it's already done, you know? Oh, that's what you do? Yes, that's, that's what you do. You pray like it's already done. And you guys are killing me. You want me to, you want me to shut up? No, no, I love you. Okay. What are you talking about? I'm killing I'm loving So this. anyway, I want to now, hear more about now the I'm praying to meet James Ray, right? Right. Praying, praying, praying. All of a sudden, I get a phone call. Hey, Dad. What's up, Nick? Oh, you know, I'm in the bathroom here at this Beverly Hills Hotel. I think that guy's in here that's in that movie, The Secret. I said, ask him what his name is. And Nick goes, hey, excuse me, sir, what's your name? My name is James Ray. I put him on the phone. So, so now the guy I've been praying to meet, he's in the bathroom with my son. Okay, coincidence, wow. whatever. There are no coincidences in life, but whatever. So anyway, now the long guy with the dreads, Michael Beckwith, now I start praying, you know, because I want to want to see him. You know, I want to meet him now. So I, I'm figuring this crap's work, this works. So all of a sudden I had a really, really bad day one day, and I walked off the set of American Gladiators. I just walked off. And I had the number one show on NBC, 8 o'clock. Ben Silverman had, I had an office in Beverly Hills. I had one in New York. Ben Silver, Ben Silverman goes, you own the network. 
the numbers were crazy. We were doing really, really good. And I had a really bad situation happen. I just walked off the set. And I didn't come back. And I was in Tampa, and Layla Ali called me. She goes, what's up with you? And I kind of told her what, what kind of was going on. She goes, well, I want you to come to church with me. And nobody's ever asked me to do that, right? So I said, when do you want me to come? She goes, how about this Sunday? I said, I'll be there. And I was in Tampa. So I flew out there. We go to church. Guess who's preaching? Michael Beckwith. So I'm like, you know, the guy I wanted to meet, the guy mm. with the dreads. So anyway, I started listening to what he said. He ended up marrying me the second time, and we became friends and stuff. But it kind of led me down that path, you know, to start searching and finding what, what worked for me and what mm. I believed in. And ever since then, man, that's been the number one priority. And it kind of locked me in, you know, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what I believe in. And so everything else is a distant second to what happens around me. Yeah, you know? that provides you with a lot of, like, peace, right? Oh, my God. That's you have the no thing idea. that all my friends that are very religious say, that it gives them a peace yeah. that, that I don't think people have without it, which is interesting. Yeah, and, and the craziest thing was, Sky, the girl I'm engaged to, <laughs> it's such a crazy story. I swore I'd never date another blonde. <laughs> swore to God I'd never date another blonde, right? That's hilarious. Yeah. So the really cool thing was, after I met her, there's a whole long story to that situation, but after I met her, um, the fact that she's a believer too, is just really kind of like makes things so easy. It would be probably difficult for you at this stage of your life to date someone who wasn't, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, was, I was married to somebody uh, the second time who wasn't, um, it didn't really resonate with her, mm -hmm. that it was more the universe and the Wayne Dyer and, the, yeah. and all that stuff, you know, and <laughs> Esther Hicks and all that stuff. And, well, I mean, that's a little bit of the law of attraction, too. Right? Yeah, it is. Like, but There's a lot of... Uh, there's yeah, but there's a lot of idolatry there, bro, and worshiping false idols. Yes. So I just, I'm not on that team. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I keep an open mind about whether or not the law of attraction is. There's probably something going on with our minds and the way it interacts with reality that's not measurable. And I think you could say... Like, we know that people that have a positive outlook and positive thinking and they, they do the right things, they get further and better in life, right? So it's, it's obvious that, like, the direction that you put your thoughts and your time and your effort into, if you're doing it the right way, yield results. The problem with the, that I have with, like, a lot of these people that think that you could just think about things and then they happen it's like everybody that's thought about things and happened has already done, they do a lot of shit. There's a lot of movement. It's not as simple as just like thinking about something. That's, but it might be a real aspect of it. Because I know a lot of talented people that have a negative perspective and shit never seems to go right for them, even though they're really talented. There's like something about the way they look at yeah. life and reality. They're kind of like hamstringing themselves. Well, it's, it's more than just thinking, it, brother. You have to believe it and you have to feel it like right. it's already done. And then, you, then you get a better shot at it. When you know? said that it's like scientifically proven, how is, it, how is the law of attraction scientifically proven? Well, it's just it's proven because like attracts like, you know, um, well, positive charges and negative charges are opposites, mm -hmm. you know, but they repel away from each other. You know, if you try to put them together, well, positive, I take that back. Positive doesn't, um, maybe I didn't misspeak. Positive, maybe I shouldn't have said We science. suck at science. Yeah. You're <laughs> Everyone right. knows it. Yeah. We're not here yeah. for science. Okay. This Hulk Hogan weed's good. Yeah. It's a little too good. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's a little, too, it's but, a little problematic. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there were some times I was lost. 
But, yeah, but just just um, at the end of the day, everything that I've read, mindset, and you know, just like you're saying, yeah. if, if people are really really negative, you're not going to attract really greatness to yourself if you're always, you know, upset or mad or thinking bad thoughts. No, no, you you certainly aren't. You know, it's interesting. Uh, my friend um, Will Harris he uh, interviewed Sugar Sean O'Malley. And uh, he did this whole series on Sugar Sean before he won the world title this weekend. And there's a, there's a sick, it's probably on his Instagram, where he's talking to him and he's like, you manifested this. Like, you manifested this success. Like, you, you had this mindset, you applied the work, but you knew you had a vision in your mind of what was going to happen. And you made it happen. And what is that like? He's like, well, I always knew it was going to happen. But still, when it happened, here, play this, because it's pretty crazy. And don't let me forget to tell you something. Okay. Vision for yourself, is this shit so real? Like, or, or is it like, I mean, you talk, you talk about how you planned all this. Do you wake up sometimes and, 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 and look at this situation and just be like, man, this is crazy? Yeah, usually in camp I have more like quiet time, time to myself. That's where I feel like I grow the most is in camps because of that reason alone. Like, I'll find myself sitting outside by myself, kind of just thinking about all this shit. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it is, it's like, if you would have asked me years ago, am I going to have all this, when I do all this, I would have said yeah. So it's not like, holy shit, what, I can't believe this, because I can believe it. But it is still, like, damn, like, it was all the vision at one point, you know, I wanted, all I wanted was like a, a big, a nice house with a backyard, a hot tub, and a cold plunge, and a sauna, and a Lambo. <laughs> oh shit okay well i got all that pretty quick so uh what's next beating up peter you know getting that championship belt maybe two uh i want to be i want to i want to do big things in the sport it's good but it's like that's an example i mean massive amounts of hard work but also believing this thing and having this yes. like sort of unstoppable focus on this thing. There's a great value of that. I don't know if it's, you would say it's the law of attraction. I don't know if that's real. It may be real. It might be yeah. some aspect of it that's real. But I know that that shit works. Like if you could think like that and, and work like he does and you have talent, you can make wild things happen in this life. And it's amazing to see. And with someone like when he just won the title this weekend, yeah. there's something amazing when you see a, a, a spectacular performance that you know has come out of years and years of intense labor, yeah. intense discipline, yeah. and a mindset focused on this. And then you see it happen. Right. People can do extraordinary things. Agreed. It's really, and it's, it's amazing for all of us, as long as you're not a hater. And if you're a hater, yeah. you're robbing yourself of inspiration. Yes, agreed. You're a hater. You're you're you literally robbing yourself. You don't know it, but you're you're stealing from your own ambition by being jealous of others. It sucks, but that's just what it is. It's like if you can instead look at someone like that and go, "Holy shit! If he did that, what if I applied myself like that? What if I thought like that? What if I went after something with every fiber of my being, like he went after that title?" Could I do something good? Could I do something that I'd be proud of? Could I do something magical? Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could. Just got to think the right way. But I wanted to tell you before, I didn't say that, but I said something kind of like that. When I was still playing in a rock and roll band and all these big, scary wrestlers were coming in and I was this long-haired hippie playing in a band that one of the wrestling managers was kind of like, 
nice to me, you know. And I said, oh, can I, can I come over and talk to you someday? He goes, so he says, yeah, come by my house. And he told me where he lived. And as I'm sitting in the living room, this guy's managing superstar Billy Graham, Joe LaDuke, um, a guy named Steve Strong, who is Will, I don't know if you know who these guys are, with superstar Billy Graham. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And yeah. Um, as he came in the house, he goes, well, what do you want to talk about? I said, I want to, I want to get in the wrestling business. And I told him this. Straight to his face, I said, I'm going to be the greatest wrestler that ever lived. And I told him that. Now, not knowing if I was or not, but all I'm saying is the mantra, the very, very positive mantra of the training prayers and vitamins, what did it attract? Yeah. You know, and nothing against a lot of the other wrestlers. I wasn't Mr. Perfect throwing bubble gum. I wasn't doing the Undertaker with death and body bags. I wasn't doing the Stone Cold thing, drinking beer, and he's a huge wrestler. All these guys are Undertaker. They're all huge. But for me, that training, prayers, and vitamins, I just wanted to really get in the wrestling business and make a living. You know, I didn't know that it was going to spiral like that. Well, how could you? No. But I mean, he, he's saying he knew it. I didn't know it. I just said it. Right. Like right. it was already done and just threw it out there. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people that said it and didn't make it, though. That's the problem. We're not factoring those people in <laughs> it's the thing with the law of attraction you don't really factor in losers there's not an yeah. accurate count of how that's true so many people are not quite honest about it either because it's very painful to fail and that's why many, many people don't try to it's um i don't know it's it's interesting but it's it's interesting to me to see a guy like you with a very positive mindset and this new sort of appreciation for your faith and that you're 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 showing great benefits from it there's times when people, do you know the story of Oliver Anthony? Do you know Oliver Anthony? No, is? I don't. He's this guy who has the number one song in the country. And uh, he recorded it in his backyard in Is this Virginia. the red-haired kid we're talking yes. about? Oh, yeah. I've... So this guy gave himself to Christ like 30 days ago. And, wow. And was having all sorts of problems with substance abuse and normal chaos. And hit rock bottom. And, uh, and like... I don't. I want. I don't want to speak for him. I don't know what he actually said, but it was something to the tune of, "Please God, if you can straighten my life, if you could just straighten my life out, I will. I will dedicate myself to you, and I will, I'll be on the right track." And then thirty days later, wow, he, he's clean and he hits with this insane song. Do you know the song? Yeah, yeah. Play that song, Jamie, because this song is insane. And this guy doesn't have a label. He's not attached. He won't sign anything. People are trying to get him to sign things. They're offering him like millions of dollars. And he's like, you know, nope, nope, nope. I'm not signing shit. I'm, I'm going to be Probably myself and be independent. Being yourself. Listen to this. Yeah, this is amazing. What the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you, wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. It's such a simple song. Yeah. With just, what is that? What kind of instrument is that? That's not a banjo, right? It's a guitar. No, it's, it's, a, it's a guitar. He's got a capo on it. He's playing way high up on the neck. That's a D. If that was where it normally was, it's playing an A minor, a C, a G. And, and that's a D there that he's playing. Does that metal thing where he's strumming behind it, does that change the tone? 
Yeah, it does. It makes it a little more banjo-esque. Yeah. Right. But yeah, he's got that capo halfway up the neck because his, his voice is a lot higher. Isn't it crazy that just this guy and the guitar, just singing, just captivates people? That's amazing, right? It's amazing. But this is another example of a guy who just, like, hits rock bottom fully all in. Well, he's, saying, then, he's saying what people think, man. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And the people freaking out, like, trying to attack him and trying to figure out what's wrong with him. What's wrong with him? This guy's probably got a shady past. Like, right. can't, people just, <laughs> can't people just ever just appreciate someone's thing that they put out there? Can't they just appreciate that? Why don't they just appreciate that? How about not things? judging people? How about just well, from this moment forward, moving forward? Some people should be judged. There's a lot of criminals out there. I'm not saying we shouldn't judge. Uh, I just think we should be more charitable. And when someone just puts out a beautiful song like that, you should go, that's a beautiful song. Just enjoy it. Why can't right. we just enjoy things? <laughs> Why is everybody, yeah, I'm, you know? True words. Yeah. I mean, uh, if people really lived like Christians, it would be probably a better place for most folks. You know? I agree. When you uh, go to church now, is it chaos? Does everybody try to get selfies? Like, what's that like? No, man. It's, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, I go to... Indian Rocks Christian Church with with Sky, Sky Sky's my girl. You shouldn't thing. probably tell people where you go to church because they're going to go to church with the Hulkster. No. Hulk I want more people. Wild. I want more people there. At All right, Rocks you're going to get it. They're coming. Yeah, Pastor Aaron's my boy, man. He he it's needs nice. to be he needs to be tested. And uh, <laughs> her son goes to one of her sons goes to Indian Rocks Christian, so we go there every Sunday and uh, really look forward to it. You know, it's just. Uh, Kind of like it's something that you don't let go of. A lot of people plug in and plug out, but it—I it, don't plug out. Once I'm plugged in, I'm, I'm there, you know, because I've seen it change a lot of people. A lot of people. There's also some real power to a bunch of people getting together to agree that they're there to be a better person in the eyes of God. Yeah. There's something. There's something very powerful about that. A group of everybody that meets together in the community at a certain time, dresses nice. And just all agrees that we're here to try to be a better person in the yeah. eyes of God. I've seen it change people. The brother that is responsible for this shirt, the John 316 devotional team, Mel Chancey. He was the president of the Chicago Hells Angels um, for years. Mm -hmm. You had Zito in New York. Yeah. You know, and Mel was the president of the club in Chicago. And, you know, knew him very well back in the day. And when I go to Chicago, it would be, you know, ripping and running. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Mel did about nine years, you know, and uh, a bunch of stuff, Rico stuff and all kind of craziness. Uh oh And actually when Mel came out and he tried to get a hold of me, I had second thoughts going, whoa, what's up with the brother here, you know? Right. I haven't seen him for a while, you know? And one of the last times I saw him, you could probably pull it up, is when we were in Knoxville and I had the Hells Angels circling the ring on their Harleys. You know, they said I didn't have any backup, and so I made a phone call because I, I got a bunch of friends back in the day that were in the club, and so they all showed up in in Knoxville, and that's the last time I saw Mel before he went away. And uh, and he came out, you know, and um, I, people sent me a couple of messages. He was out, and I'm going, oh, my God, here we go again. Here we go again. And so all of a sudden we hooked up and, and touched base. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, Zito there the on the shit. left. I think Mel's on the right. 
I mean, this is peak heel Hogan, bad guy. Oh, yeah, we, we were <laughs> evil went from people. the best good guy to the best bad guy. Yeah. Oh, we were talking about that when we were getting coffee. That um, oh, that was gonna... your idea to turn heel. Oh, let me, let me please, just finish, let me just finish the story. And now Mel comes out of prison, and dude, he's he's been saved. He's accepted Christ as a savior. Yeah, there's Big Mel right there. But anyway. You know, I have these Jesus Callings book. I have a I have a Bible in the kitchen. I have two in my office. And I have one upstairs in my bathroom because I can't really stand and stand stand for like brushing my teeth and one thing's one thing. But when I pull the ponytail out and I got these these fake hair extensions, so I look like Hulk Hogan, you know, right. with the blonde hair hangs down, I'm trying to straighten these hair extensions out and do whatever I'm doing. I have a chair, you know, that I kind of kind of sit there and have this. Uh, all my Bibles and stuff, and I have Jesus Calling in different books. And Jesus Calling has a morning and afternoon message, you know. So I read this one, man. I said, you know what? That's perfect. I've called Big Mel up. I said, I know you got social media, Mel. I want you to go on and read this today, you know. So Big Mel, he goes, he goes, oh, I don't know. I said, he goes, you read it. I said, no, you read it. You know, we went back and forth a little bit. So he actually read it. Now he's got this huge following, and you can – I guess I don't know how you do it. You Google him or something on Instagram, but he's got this huge uh, John 3.16 devotional. Just people all over the world are following him now, and he he puts the word out every Sunday. So I've seen people change, brother, from being Mm. straight out enforcers, badass, crazy people to to being, you know, people that walk one with Christ. People can definitely change. Yeah, it's amazing. And that's a, that's a way that people do – I mean, there's a reason why they have it in Alcoholics Anonymous as a part of the 12-step program, giving yourself up to a higher power. Yeah, but it's it's like for me when we were talking about the, the pain pills and stuff and, and stuff like that, some people I feel bad because they have addictive personalities, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes they get caught in that web. So as I had all these surgeries and they were hitting me with all this stuff, I said, enough's enough, you know, and so – it's kind of like everything. If I want to quit drinking or quit doing right. stuff, it's pretty easy for me. But um, I just feel bad for the guys that couldn't get out of the, the cycle, you know. Yeah, there's some guys, man, whether it's booze or pills or whatever it is, like you can't keep away from it. I had a good buddy of mine that died in like, two, I think he died in 2001, 2002. And uh, he just was always up and down. He just always, it was coke and pills and and then yeah. booze to calm him down. And then uh, I'm going to clean up. And then he didn't. And then, you know, it, it, later in his life, it got to be pills. It got to be heroin. And it was just, oof. Yeah, that's what killed my brother. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's a number of, I mean, opioid overdoses are, I don't know if it's the number one killer of young people, but it's 100,000 people a year. They're dying of uh, fentanyl overdoses. And a, a lot of it is accidental when they're getting it in something else. They're getting it in some, you know, street Xanax or street, you know. I mean, I didn't even know what it was. And when the doctor prescribed it to me, I figured it was something that, you know, kind of like the normal pain pill stuff. But when it got my system up, man, I can't even, looking at my dogs, I can't even remember my dogs' names. I mean, what in the hell? That's why I said... You know, at the time, I said, I'd rather be dead than on this stuff. I mean, really, that's where I was at with it because they had me so loaded up. I had no idea it was some crazy drug that was going to change society completely and kill everybody that touches the stuff. If you, yeah. A lot of these police officers just have encounters opening bags up and they, mm-hmm. they overdose just yeah. from contact, you know. so 
It's insane when you see the the size of uh, the amount you need to die from it. Yeah, it's so tiny. It's so fucking sketchy, and it's coming through the border. And the precursors come from China. Holla, holla. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole thing is just insane, you know. And um, I don't know how to solve that problem. I mean, there's probably a bunch of steps that should be taken, but the point is. Um, to, for a person that's gone through it like yourself and has come out of the other end and you're showing that, you know, that this is what's really helped you. I think that's very powerful. Well, that's the truth. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you speak the truth. It's clear. It's the truth. It's awesome. It's awesome to see you, uh, and it's awesome to see how sharp your mind is, man. Like, what are you, um, do you take supplements, vitamins, and things like that? Or, like, are you? Yeah, I used to be the uh, organic guy, you know? And um, go straight to Nature's Food Patch, which is our little independent grocery store where we live. And, of course, I still buy the food there, but I was buying the vitamin stuff. And then I got with uh, a nutritionist, you know, that kind of like did muscle testing. And if there's like mm. five or six vitamin Cs, she can tell you which one works the best for mm -hmm. you, you know, by having the product there and testing it on the spot. And so I've gotten sucked into buying all the vitamins from her you know mm. and so i you know i got that from the a to the z as the sheik would say i got all the the vitamin stuff just and if i take too many man at one time i have to split them up a couple times during the day if i eat the whole lot at once man you just oh get, so you're going ham you're you're taking a lot of stuff oh yeah i just get sick as a dog nauseated yeah, yeah but it sounds is it made a noticeable difference when you started doing that um not in not in the the amount of pain in my body and in the way I feel. Yes, I it's just that. it's just my mindset and everything. You know, it's kind of like instead of going down that rabbit hole like I used to, I reel myself back in. I got to check myself at the door a lot. You know, because I can be pulled really. I don't have like road. I mean, uh, road rage if somebody mm -hmm. pulls in front of me or anything like that. But when things happen, business wise or somebody that. I care about or a very good friend lies to me or something i i kind of like i get that good hulk here the bad hulk here you know mm. right? and i kind of like i lean into it and i it's just our business we just handle things differently with men like i talk to men differently differently than i talk to women sure and and with men we've always been able to kind of like don't fuck me mike come on buddy whatever it's just you know? yeah it's just it's just yeah. it was just the business right. i was in was so different if we had a problem it either right. would be fixed there or out there, right. you know? And so it's just kind of like I, I kind of like keep it dialed in now, you know? And so it's things are good, man. It's, things are really good. That's good that you could avoid that kind of stress. But you, you have more access to resources, like mental resources, when you're healthy. So if you're, you're taking good nutrition, you're eating well and sleeping well, you'll make better choices for the most part than if you're tired. Like, it's why people make such poor food choices when they're tired. It's like literally something that goes on with your brain when you're exhausted that you'll, you'll just go, fuck it. Let's pull into a jack-in-the-box drive-thru. Yep. And you'll eat a bunch of shit you feel terrible about five minutes after you eat it. But that's just, you don't have access. If you were healthy in the middle of the day at noon, you wouldn't, you wouldn't I'm not going to eat that. I won't, yeah. I'll feel like shit. You'll eat better. Like, you make better choices when you're healthier. And yeah. when you have more energy and your body is given all the proper nutrition and rest and, and fluids and you're well hydrated, you're, you're gonna function better. You're gonna think better. You're gonna make better choices. You're gonna do more things. It's just a smart thing to do.
Yeah. Well, when I was drinking a lot of alcohol, which which January 1st, I quit drinking. I went seven months without drinking anything. And all I know is when I was drinking at night, when everybody would wind down, I'd be the one eating the, the popcorn or eating the protein bar, getting the ice cream and all that stuff. You know, and I was hovering even about two years ago, I was still hovering around 300 pounds, you know? Whoa. And so, you know, I'm down to like 260 now or 265. That's kind of like what I weighed in ninth and 10th grade. <laughs> so, you know, I feel much better, you know, just cleaning my act up and just like you said, you know, if, if we were out drinking last night and raising the hot, I felt like crap st- sitting here. It's so hard when you're, when you've had a few drinks and then you come home, it's so hard not to just go ham. Oh, I go crazy. Just I eat everything ham. in the refrigerator. <laughs> just yeah. fucking yeah. start making sandwiches. And I, I made two, uh, three egg fried egg sandwiches one night. Ooh. So I ate six eggs, fried eggs with like bacon. Peppers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pepperoncinis? Mm. Yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And um, Primal Kitchen Chipotle lime mayonnaise. Oh. So I've got that. Oh, my God. American cheese melted. Let's go. <laughs> Let's fucking go. That's great. I ate two of those, and I felt terrible after. I was like, what's yeah. wrong with you? It's did, two in the morning, you fucking dipshit. I did Chicago theater Saturday night, and Yoni's like, uh, Philip uh, from um, Phil Sushi Frank by Lee. Scratch. Yeah. Uh, they have a Chicago location, so they're sending sushi. I'm like, awesome. That's good. We're going to feel good. He goes, and also the best pizza chef in all of Chicago wants to actually cook pizza in the kitchen of the green room he has his own oven he's done it before he's gonna make fresh chicago pizza and oh my god we went crazy i must have had 10 slices of pizza and i've been pretty much you know no bread because it's like poison once you stop eating it you know what i mean but that was basically just like it's like doing heroin it was so exciting did you crash oh man i mean like you wouldn't believe. Like it was just like I was just like disgusting afterwards. Even compared to like drinking, it's funny because you drink and you, you eat shit and you feel like shit the next day. But what I've learned only recently is that you can drink as long as you don't eat the shit. You're gonna be, be much better yeah. than if you ate the shit. Like a lot of the hangovers coming from the In and Out and from the Chicago style pizza and all that. Yeah, when you go to In and Out, dude, you just gotta go flying Dutchman. Get yeah. the, just the patties. Protein style, yeah. animal style. That's the way to go, man. Yep. Mm. That's the way to go. Well, Hulk, uh, it's great to see you thriving. Uh, uh, tell everybody about your uh, your cannabis line, too, before we leave. Well, because we it, it, it confused us for like a solid 45 minutes of the podcast. Where like, yeah. This well, stuff's too I think strong. You got a bag, you got a bag of, really? We're back. Yeah, it's bag, good stuff. Bag of the crazy stuff down there. We got the, the CDV stuff. CBD, this sunburn vape sunburn, pen's amazing. Flower, vape pens. Yeah. Um, where can people have access to that stuff? Oh my gosh, it's everywhere now. The uh, the nicotine stuff is uh, the vapes are are everywhere now. I mean. So you guys have nicotine vapes. You have, uh, did you give us those too? Yeah, those. Keep sh- those away sh- from Jamie. He he goes crazy for nicotine vapes. <laughs> Every day. Every day he's out there vaping with the kids. Yeah, and the THC the THC stuff is one state at a time. Of course, right. you know. When are yeah. they gonna just federally make that legal and get the taxes? <laughs> get the taxes from it, you yeah. mutts. It should be legal. It should have been legal a long ass time ago. Stupid. It to the Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. But uh. And do you guys sell uh, CBD as well, like uh, gummies or any of that stuff too? Yes. Yes. And we do. Where's uh, Where's a website where people can go and find out where they can purchase that? Uh. Don't know. Uh, They'll find sure. it. There, oh, Jamie uh, already found there it. You go. Oh, there yeah. it is. 
We've got all that stuff in the bag there. Immortalbyhulkhogan.com. So that's what it is. Just go to immortalbyhulkhogan.com. You have access to all that stuff. Coming soon, brother. Put your email address in there. Subscribe now. There you go. Uh, Hulk Hogan, you're the fucking man. Uh, I had my day, brother. A, a fan since I was a, a kid. So to, to hang out with you here and to be able to do this, it was, it was very fun. Appreciate well, you very much. Thanks for having me, man. It's a really cool setup you got here, brother. Thank oh, you. my pleasure. Thank you. Much Thank respect. You. Shout out to the great and powerful Tony Hinchcliffe. Uh, every Monday on YouTube, the best live comedy show in the world is Kill Tony. It's filmed and, and recorded live from the mothership right here in Austin. Tony's the master. You're the fucking best at hosting a show like that that I've ever seen. And you know what went on sale during this actual taping that we're at right now is uh, the new podcast, live podcast from the Mothership with Ric Flair, which we're filming for uh, oh, for the first right. time next week. That's right. Oh, so cool. they're doing, you guys, this is so hilarious because you talked about it when Rick was on the podcast yeah. and then you guys went back and forth. You sent me a text message and email. I'm like, I knew how big this is to you. Yeah. This to you is like, I mean, it's literally like somebody just gave you a Ferrari or it's something. It's crazy. It's insane. Ric Flair messaging me going, I want to do a podcast with you. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So look at this. The goat and the pony. Yeah. Ric Flair and, pony. and Tony Hinchcliffe. Uh, the tickets are on sale. You can watch it live. Um, and uh, it's a 2 p.m. show on Tuesday, August 29th. And what was the other one, Jeremy? That's two and four Tuesday and two and four taping on Wednesday. So is you, this so a one-time deal, or are you guys going to be consistent? I think we're going to do it consistent. It's going to be cool. yeah. fucking huge. Yeah, he's going to come out for two days every month, and we're going to shoot four during the day, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m., <laughs> release one a week. I love the it. The goat and pony. I've never well, seen you more excited Don't about make him laugh, project. because if you make him laugh, he laughs at his own jokes anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And he just... Oh, we're going to laugh. That's great. Listen, <laughs> you guys, one thing that you guys all have in common is pro wrestlers, like the is the the old school guys that, that I bring in here. You guys have tremendous character. You're just awesome people. Yeah. And it's just fun to talk to you, whether it's uh, Dallas or you know Jake the Snake or all, all these, the Undertaker. Mm -hmm. You guys are some of the coolest fucking people. We've seen, just, we've seen the pyramids. You've man. seen we, it all. Remember <laughs> where all the dead bodies are. That's for sure. You've seen it all. And I uh, mean that. Uh, and uh, on Instagram, what is your uh, handle on Instagram? It's Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan on everything. Hulk yes, Hogan sir. on everything. All right. Thank yeah. you, sir. Appreciate oh, you very thank much. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Tony Hinchcliffe, you're the man. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Oh, you're playing the song. Give me. Let me see it. Put it on the screen. Hulk Hogan theme song. We'll wrap it up with this. Oh my gosh, that's kind of scary. <laughs>